You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, just before we start the show today, I want to do a little house cleaning here and thank all of the latest Patreon donors to the show. I really appreciate you uh, spending your hard-earned cash and spending your hard-earned time listening to the show. Alistair Montgomery, Nicholas Kernow, Stuart Rankin, David Bertrand, Winter Tyson, Jason Kaufman, thank you guys so much for donating to the show. I always appreciate it. It is uh, just a wonderful thing that people care enough about the projection booth to give their hard-earned cash to this show, this venture. So thank you for helping me out. I really appreciate that. All right, with that, let's get on to the big show. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. He thought he was watching her, but she was watching him. thought he was trespassing, but he was invited. He knew he had gone too far. He couldn't stop. He saw exactly what she wanted him to see. master of suspense invites you to witness a seduction a mystery a murder body double you can't believe everything you see welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me this week is mr bill ackerman great to be back also in the booth this week is mr jim vendiola hey mike thanks for having me this week, we're discussing Brian De Palma's 1984 film, Body Double. The film stars Craig Wasson as Jake Scully, an actor in a low-budget vampire film. He experiences a terrifying bout of claustrophobia while trying to perform a scene. He leaves the set, which has been closed down for a week, and starts to pound the pavement looking for a gig to, in the interim. While making the rounds, he meets fellow actor Sam Bouchard, played by Greg Henry, Sam's going out of town and does a favor for his new pal by setting him up in a lavish house with an incredible view, a woman who performs a ritual of self-pleasure across the way. But of course, things aren't always what they seem. Now, we're going to be getting to spoilers big time in this episode, so if you haven't watched this movie before, you have been warned. So, Bill, when was the first time you saw Body Double, and what did you think? I think the first time I saw it was probably in the early 90s. It would have been on VHS. I would have seen Dress to Kill, and that would have made me curious to check out more Brian De Palma thrillers. And I think I expected something maybe in that ballpark, like a more explicit take on the classic Hitchcock thrillers. And I remember thinking it was a lot weirder and more over the top than I was expecting. Like I had seen other stylish 80s thrillers like Blood Simple, Body Heat, Blue Velvet, um, maybe a few that didn't begin with B. But, you know, I was surprised. I was surprised how, like, 80s it was. Like, the music and fashion, like, it didn't feel like it was designed to be as timeless as maybe some of the earlier De Palma thrillers, like Obsession, that felt a little bit more 
almost self-consciously classy. Like this felt like a different uh, animal than what I was expecting. And I might have thought that that was something of a flaw at the time, because I used to be a little bit more tough on elements that took me out of a movie. And this would have been when the 80s were only just having ended a few years ago. So I probably was a little bit taken aback by Frankie Goes to Hollywood showing up and whatnot. But over the years, maybe having seen all of De Palma's other films and just rewatching it a lot over the years, it's it's become one of my favorites easily of his. How about you, Jim? I was pretty late to this movie. Um, Prior to... Seeing this um, in my mid-20s, I was uh, a big fan of De Palma's uh, 70s stuff, uh, Sisters in particular, um, as well as Carrie, and uh, Phantom of the Paradise I also uh, liked a lot. So I don't think I had seen Dress to Kill. Um, I've always been kind of a a big Scarface hater, um, having, having grown up in, uh, in Miami, Florida, I think, I think, uh, Pacino's accent is, uh, just over the top to the point of being offensive. And for, for like almost three hours of a running time, I, I just kind of find that mostly insufferable. Where'd you learn to speak the English, Donnie? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was, uh, from the United States. When I saw this, probably towards the end of the aughts, I really did not know what to make of it. I had been gifted a VHS copy of it as a white elephant, and the person who gave it to me just thought it was completely silly. And so I I just gave it a shot one night, and I tended to agree. I thought it was basically the most absurd film I had ever seen in my, you know, fairly short but uh, voluminous film viewing life um and i still kind of kind of stand by that i saw this one on cable probably mid to late 80s this one came out in 84 i probably saw it around like 86 87 somewhere around there it was really the golden age of erotic thrillers and i don't know where this fits into the whole pantheon of erotic thrillers but seeing stuff on late night cable when you're a teenager, stuff like this, stuff like Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion, you could find more twisted sexuality on TV if you were looking for it, but this really scratched an itch that I had, and the -the over-the-topness and everything. And I'm seeing this movie before I'm seeing the movies that inspired it. I'm seeing this maybe around the same time I'm watching Rear Window, but I'm definitely seeing it before Vertigo. I'm seeing it before a lot of other Hitchcock things. So for me, this is the genuine article, and I don't really know that it's playing on other themes until much later, like watching Vertigo in college and saying, oh, this is just like Body Double backwards but that's okay <laughs> so but yeah i i absolutely love this film and it is one that has stuck with me for years and when people talk about de palma i know a lot of people go back to dress to kill that was a huge movie for him and then yeah scarface right around the same time was also a very big movie for him i didn't come to dress to kill until i was in college and i was just like okay yeah this doesn't really do it for me scarface never really did it for me. I mean, I've talked on the show before about movies like Blowout and Phantom of the Paradise. That, to me, is Prime De Palma, and Body Double is right up there with those movies as far as style and 
having something to say, playing with the medium. And you can dismiss this as being just uh, kind of a style exercise, but I think there's a lot more going on, which I, which is one of the reasons why I chose it to be uh, an episode is because there is so much to uncover here. And it is such a, a fun kind of mashup of all of these Hitchcock things with a great Brian De Palma twist to it. It's almost his, his most postmodern film in that in that sort of mashup pastiche sort of pre-Tarantino kind of way. It feels like in some ways like it's a trolling of his critics and a trolling of the MPAA and a trolling of feminist protesters like it's it's definitely got a a mischievous quality to it but it's also like a great uh, excuse to show off Los Angeles like the outside of um obsession all of his more hitchcockian films prior to this were Philadelphia and New York stories and this uh feels like a really good excuse to you know go to interesting locations whether it be places like Tale of the Pup like that hot dog stand or like the Chemisphere House or the Rodeo collection like it's a film that's excited to express a story through locations like we're going to be talking about theme and character in the film but you know with with De Palma I think a lot of the time you know he's conceiving in terms of strong imagery and set pieces more than than strong characters or dialogue and so it feels like a film that's very much in love with all of the places that it's going to take you like visually in terms of you know where things are set. And just so people know, we are going to be talking a lot about Rear Window, maybe a little bit of Dial M for Murder, definitely Vertigo. So if you aren't familiar with those movies, definitely check those out, maybe even before you listen to this episode, because we're going to be name-checking those like crazy, even when it comes to the very beginning of the film. Because in Vertigo, you get the opening where you see why Jimmy Stewart has Vertigo. And when it comes to the opening of Body Double, we start with... Jake having this moment of claustrophobia, and that is his ailment, much like Jimmy Stewart had vertigo in Vertigo, but claustrophobia in this movie. And we don't, we kind of find out why he has it a little bit later on, but we don't actually see it. It's not like a, a, a moment that we get. We don't have Craig Watson stuck in a space like we have Jimmy Stewart dangling from the roof at the beginning of Vertigo, and we never really see the rescue or anything. We get him in an enclosed space in this coffin. It's got a cutaway to the side of it, so it's not even like it's completely enclosed in. I guess it's because the camera's so close to him that he feels like he's cut off, but we don't really get anything that's going on inside of Jake's brain. So it's kind of a mystery to us what's happening here, and we don't necessarily get that solved for us as we go along. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that seems a lot less consistent and more shoehorned into the narrative than uh, than Stewart's Vertigo. Jumping ahead just a little bit, like I, I feel like there's a, you know, the the scene where he's he's in that long corridor, which doesn't feel claustrophobic at all compared to uh, you know the other the other binds he finds himself in that sort of trigger that. It's not necessarily tacked on, but we don't get it as much. And I was surprised reading the screenplay, some of the moments that happen inside of this movie, we don't actually get in the screenplay, like him in a, to me, a very familiar situation. I hate crowds and I hate being kind of hemmed in by people. So him in that elevator, he doesn't have a reaction necessarily in the script, but he does have it in the movie. Uh, And that's one of those moments where we're like, oh yeah, he's got claustrophobia and it's good that they keep reminding us of that because otherwise 
honestly, we would forget because it's just not that much to it. It's not like it really adds those many things. You know, it's, it's more, I think that his more, how should I say, debilitating ailment is his voyeurism. And that's what the Greg Henry character ultimately plays upon. And he just kind of uses the claustrophobia as kind of a, a little bit of gravy on that situation. When we talk about the Watson character, it, he's, I mean, I think it's, it's meant to be, um, like an emasculated character. Like that's, that's what the Greg Henry, like, you know, what he's picking up on is not just, you know, him explain the claustrophobia in that actor's workshop, but, you know, admitting to, uh, you know, his, his girlfriend uh, cheating on him and you know, maybe even picking up a little bit on the drinking problem that is kind of, really kind of disregarded at a certain point in the narrative. It's only kind of hinted at the beginning. Just he's the weakest, most vulnerable person for the, for the job that he needs an actor for. Um, there, there was more of, uh, them together in the original script of them auditioning together and, and Watson's character being a weaker actor as well. Him using that to bond, uh, that we, you know, we still get that, that quality in the, in the final film though is, you know, but it's, it's, it's done in a different way, you know, as far as identifying how to manipulate the character. I think one of the reasons why this movie stands out so much for me is that I love movies about making movies and I love movies that play with the conventions of movies. And this movie is right there in this movie. Even the title card is over a backdrop and then the backdrop eventually moves. And we learn that it is a backdrop that we're not looking out into this vista. And I like that even the credits are playing with this idea of doubles, which if anybody's ever listened to this show before, they know how much I love talking about doubling by having the two different fonts that kind of more like uh, it's more like a rocky horror type of font and then just a standard uh, serif font in the way that we go from one to the other and it kind of wipes away from one font to the other so we're already playing with those things and then uh, to your point bill as far as this emasculation of craig wasson's character his character as a vampire is not the most butch vampire that I've ever seen. In fact, looking at him and then looking at Holly body, the Melanie Griffith character later on in the film, they almost have the hair, same hairstyle. And then he's got more eye makeup and makeup in general than I've, I see any woman in this film wearing. Yeah. I wonder if that doubling was intentional. I have to assume that maybe it was, I, I was always thinking of the lost boys the first time I saw this, but this would have been before that. As far as that kind of glam goth vampire of the 80s. And I mentioned before that one of my favorite diplomas is Blowout. And that, again, plays with movies and behind the scenes and movie making. And the beginning of that movie starts off like we are watching another film. And it's this slasher film. And this one, we start with a vampire film. And then we eventually learn that it's not a real movie in both Blowout and then as well as this. You know, that we're not watching a film. We are watching someone shooting a film. And it's nice that these are both very low budget movies. In fact, it seems like Jack Terry from Blowout could have been working on this movie if it was being shot in Philadelphia, but instead it's in LA and uh, we have Dennis Franz coming back again, who was also in Blowout and is kind of a regular actor for De Palma playing the director here, very much a direct comment on De Palma, even wearing the same jacket and everything that De Palma likes to wear. I really appreciate that they use the low budgetness also as kind of a little bit of a punchline. Both blowout and body double, it's it's drawing a distinction between 
the films like the low budget schlock that people work on in those environments but then the film that you're watching is a is a much the implication is that this is this is like a real story this isn't like the the cheap stuff that our heroes are working on you know it it's a little bit i don't want to say snobby I, certainly blowout seems to be a little bit like judgmental in a fun, in a, in, a, in a funny way about slasher conventions and this is you know certainly not any more flattering about what vampire's kiss is going to wind up being but uh I always wonder how much of Dennis Franz's behavior is modeled on De Palma. Obviously, the look is, but I wonder how much of his actorly business is based on things he's observed uh, acting for De Palma. Well, according to some of those uh, documentaries on the indicator disc, it sounds like he was just like, yeah, I'll be in this if I can be you. And I do love that this movie is called Vampire's Kiss, which we'll see again uh, in a few years with Nick Cage in it. Uh, <laughs> another fantastic film. Uh, I have to say that is one of my favorite Nick Cage performances. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, do you have my things? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, maybe the the second most absurd film I've I've seen, second to Body Double. If we're talking about things that change from the script that we've read to the final film, a lot of times the ideas are replaced by more visually interesting variations. And one of the uh, things in this scene that we're talking about now, it's the, uh, you know, the line, like we've lost the sun. And in the script, it's, it's like indicated, like he doesn't, you know, maybe like they're losing the light. Uh, but in the film, it's a, it's a fake sun that goes up in flames. Like there's a fire that shuts down the, uh, the shoot. But I love, I love the, uh, the line, like we've lost the sun anyway, because, you know, it's, you know, we're like, we're losing the light would be standard movie set terminology. But here it's like a fake sun that's just caught on fire. And that's why they have to close down. Well, they make it better in the movie that they give it a little bit more time. It's this whole thing of we're going to shut down for a week because we had a fire on the set. And then that motivates Wasson to go out because he's on a break. And then eventually he finds out that he's been fired from the film. And I love that it's his own agent who tells him that he's been fired. And the agent also made the commission off the guy who he uh, then got hired onto that role. There's that little bit of a break and it's not just the next day kind of thing because it almost would have been too much to have him lose his job go home, find his girl sleeping with somebody else and, you know, just be one tooth punch kind of a thing. Whereas this is a little bit better that they give him a little bit more time and then pull the rug out from under him as far as, oh yeah, and you've been fired from this film too. I love that Barbara Crampton is his wife and I love, or his girlfriend, I think it is, the whole reveal of her and the way that we set up this kind of uh the, the tracking shots i guess it's it's not really a tracking shot it looks like it's a steady cam it's a steady cam pov of him going through the hallways and then cutting back to him and then him opening up the door and seeing her on top of this guy who we never see the guy at all and that look the look on her face is probably one of the most interesting things in this movie for me because you can read that look so many different ways. And I'm curious how you guys took that look on her face. I took it as uh, just disappointment 
And I was wondering if this, maybe even a little bit irritated too. In the script, she has lines and, and it's kind of like a honey wait kind of moment. But in the final film, it's, it is played more ambiguously. You're right. And I was wondering if this moment inspired a similar one, uh, where William H. Macy walks in on his wife on top of a guy in Boogie Nights, um, which is another, of course, LA porn set, uh, film. But, uh, yeah, I always saw it that she was just irritated to be, uh, and maybe a little bit, uh, Maybe a little bit sorry for him too. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, think about that that scene with uh, Nina Hartley in Boogie Nights when I see it now, especially because I had seen Boogie Nights prior to seeing this. Um, oh, in regards to the look on her face, I, I do feel like it's this sort of this initial di- disappointment followed by this well you're kind of complicit in this too for being who you are, which is what we've observed and what we will observe is kind of a loser. I mean, even the, the long steady cam lead up to him discovering her in bed is just this kind of an extension of that because he, he, he thinks it's, he, I think he's the only one that doesn't realize what's going on. Like we, as the viewer, I think know right away, the dog knows he looks at the dog, (laughs) he he shushes the dog, but then like ultimately the jokes on him and it's almost, it it seems like it's almost his fault for that. It's funny you mentioned losers. And I don't know if you noticed his tattoo in vampire's kiss says born to lose. And I don't know if that's meant to be a clue as to what's going to happen to him. I love the oral joke in this scene where, the house is burning by Viva Beat is playing in the background and it ends the scene on the uh oh line like uh oh you walked in on somebody and later the song you know is uh something he's watching again and it, it it comments on the action again because the next line is the house is burning but there's no one home like it's reminding him of that moment that he's had in his his former home uh which is just a neat little musical joke I like that we get a little bit of a clue as to what kind of person Jake Scully is too. When he gets to his house, he looks in to his own house through his window. And that's the first instance that I think we get of him peeping. So it's nice that even with his own house, he's looking in his own window, which is kind of a weird little moment for him to have. And I should have mentioned when he is leaving the Vampire's Kiss set, we get the first of many really bad looking process shots. And I think it's bad on purpose. It kind of reminds me of those bad process shots from something like Marnie, where it's him just driving and the background looks so completely fake and the sun on him looks so completely like a, you know, just a spotlight on stage. But with something like this, I think it is really done on purpose and showing us the artifice of film, even though this isn't something quote unquote low budget like Vampire's Kiss, that we're still going to be playing with this kind of different filmmaking tricks and stuff. And we know right from the get go that there are these things that are going to be employed. I think that it's definitely meant to evoke the kind of process shots that Hitchcock would use. I mean, I don't think I, I agree with you. It reminded me of Marnie also. One last thing about the Barbara Crampton scene. In the script, he's hearing her moans and he thinks that she, like maybe something has happened, like that maybe, maybe she's been injured because he's so unfamiliar with her moans of pleasure that he mistakes it for an injury, like she's been robbed or something, which is ironic because, you know, what comes later, but the, the fact that it's changed to laughter changes the meaning of that scene, but it would have been even more damning of his, uh, abilities as a lover 
for him not to recognize uh, the sound of his own uh, girlfriend's moans. To further add to that, I, I forgot to mention that one of the things that sticks out to me prior to him going home is he goes he goes and drives to this hot dog stand and picks up these hot dogs for him and his girlfriend. And there's there are these two actors. There's a a guy feeding a woman a hot dog at this hot dog stand, and not to mention just the way they shoot the facade of this hot dog stand it's it's literally this this sausage stuck in between these like two round buns which is such a funny de palma trademark sleazy sort of foreshadowing that i've I've come to enjoy in his in his stuff yeah i don't know if it's more like an anal thing or i should put it in this parlance i don't know if it's more greek or more russian it almost looks like a penis between two breasts the way that it's formed there yeah, with some like mustard running down the the middle, which is so vivid. At first, I had to look it up because I was mistaking this hot dog stand for the same one that's in Mulholland Drive, which I thought would have been a nice touch. But that one, I think, is Pink's, and this one is Tail of the Pup. And I looked on Yelp, and it looks like uh, Tail of the Pup is no longer in business. So if you're going to go out to L.A. and do a body double site tour – do not expect to eat lunch at Tail of the Pup. I think that it's in storage, that last I heard. But yeah, it's you, you can also see it in the George Benson video for Give Me the Night. Nice. And I think Pamela Anderson works there in the pilot episode of VIP. It's in a few things. It was like a famous landmark for, it, I think, what it, it's been, it used to be in business like in the, like the late 40s. So I think De Palma would have known it was a, uh, a landmark of the period. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a hilarious visual joke as well. Perfect for him. Well, yeah, and it's another bit of that love letter to L.A. that this movie is. And it's another great place to use as a visual clue as to where you're at in the city. You know, I just was talking recently about Pulp Fiction, and that movie really depends on locations and knowing where you're at in Los Angeles. This one, it plays with that, this whole idea of the uh, building that we're going to talk in a little bit uh, where Jake ends up. Uh, looks out at a completely different area of Los Angeles and De Palma kind of marries these two very disparate places together. But it's nice that it's just this kind of weird make-believe uh, version of a Los Angeles, which kind of plays again into the way that movies are made. And I did want to say, I know that Vertigo is really, you know, it's that is a San Francisco movie, but the place that Jake ends up spending the night, the bartender, he goes and, and talks to the, his uh, bartender, that place so reminds me of the place where Jimmy Stewart sees Madeleine go and sees her car and everything. I was very surprised that it wasn't the same place, but I swear that it looks like it was designed by the same designer. It does feel like they, they scouted, or at least, yeah, that, that was intentional to some degree, because I had the same reaction. Yeah, I, I looked it up after I saw that you had said that in, in the notes uh, before we recorded it. It's actually the, um, the Hollywood Tower, where I think Humphrey Bogart used to live there. And I don't know what that hotel is in San Francisco, or apartment buildings where Madeline stays in... Um in vertigo but yeah now i want to go back and do a side by side i'm probably absolutely wrong and they don't look anything like each other but i was just reminded of the one to the other and right around this time when jake goes out and is looking for 
new work, this is also where we're introduced to this Sam Bouchard character who's played by Greg Henry, and he is ever-present at each one of these interviews that uh, Jake goes on. We see Sam, and I love the way that his ears perk up at different points, like when he hears that Jake needs a place to stay, he turns around and immediately ingratiates himself into this conversation. And there are other moments where he will just be there and put himself into the conversation. And I really appreciate the role that Greg Henry plays in this. And this is an interesting role for this guy because he's playing essentially three different characters in this one particular film. So there are going to be times where we're talking about this and we'll say like, you know, the Ravel character, the Indian character, the Bouchard character, but they're all played by Greg Henry. And I love that he can manipulate Jake so well that he is right there. And it seems like he's kind of uh, trying out other actors in the meantime, in the background, like when he's talking to these other people, it feels like he is talking to them, maybe feeling them out, but then it seems like Jake is custom fit to be this perfect patsy. Yeah, it's almost like uh, th- this is an unintentional doubling of, of De Palma's in that in that Greg Henry is a better actor as Sam Bouchard, but I'd also argue that he's a better actor in this movie than Craig Wasson. Craig Wasson is an interesting actor. He has such a hangdog look to him, and he is he really is perfect for this role as this kind of sad sack guy who, you know, we've mentioned before, he's very ineffectual. He's feminized at times. He's just, uh, yeah, he's, he is not a very good actor. He ends up freaking out, um, in this acting class. I mean, there's just a lot of moments where you're just like, wow, this guy really doesn't you know, work very well, but I think Craig Wasson was the perfect choice for him. Yeah, he's supposed to be a loser. He's supposed to be, yeah, like a weak character. And I think that, yeah, it's great casting. I mean, it's hard to really judge it because, you know, maybe, yeah, he's not as, uh, like if, if someone like Travolta was casting that, like another movie star that he'd worked before, we'd be, we'd be sensing that there's a, uh, you know, a character choice that he's making, but because, Craig Wasson never really had a lot of parts after this. I mean, he, he did work for a little bit uh, while long. He's no longer, I think he's no longer acting, but you know, we don't have that same maybe familiarity with him as you know, some of the other leads that De Palma would have worked with. I mean, I think, I think prior to this, Wasson would have best been known for Ghost Story or, um, Four Friends, the Arthur Penn movie, like not, not big movies. And like this was really his last shot at, at a major breakthrough and he didn't really achieve it. So, but it, it but that works for the character knowing that he's going to fail at becoming a big movie star makes his story as a, uh, as a struggling actor that much more kind of moving, I think. I, I, I've seen him in, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three, uh, Dream Warriors as well. And it's almost, uh, you know, sort of a, identical blank canvas kind of performance i'd i'd say yeah that one has a uh, body double gag doesn't it because he gets uh, thrown in a grave at one point <laughs> oh i didn't i did not make that connection 
the interview with him on the indicator Blu-ray was hilarious because it basically is saying what you guys were just saying. Like the interviewer asks him, like, didn't you expect to become more popular from four friends or ghost story or any of these others? And he's just like, yeah, I thought that would be the big break, but that wasn't it. And no, this other one wasn't it. And it's just like, yep. And body double isn't going to be it either. And I don't think it's his fault in any of these cases. He does a great job, but he just, I don't know, something about him just isn't that compelling to me. At the same time, Body Double has lived on to the degree that it's had multiple re-releases. I mean, we're we're talking about it. It's It's got a big cult following to this day. Like He does have at least one film that stays in the conversation, maybe more so than really anything else he's been in other than maybe Dream Warriors. I mean, there's maybe people continue to joke that he looks like Bill Maher and like that might be, you know, his the punchline, the Body Double guy looks like Bill Maher. But, you know, he's he still got one film that is still in the conversation, which is more than a lot of actors in this film. I do like that in the script, there's a little bit more to Sam Bouchard in that he has a cast on his hand. And that, to me, it's it's always uh, one of these things where if somebody has their hand broken or their arm broken, it always seems to kind of indicate a little bit of a – and I know that this is a weird thing to say, but you know, watching, watching enough Star Wars films over the years, when you see someone get their hand cut off or their hand disabled, it's usually some sort of a castration metaphor. So him having his hand in the cast is a little bit like, you know, oh, I'm I'm more on your level, Jake, because I'm also disabled. Uh, but it's yet another bit of a layer for him to say, like, this is the Sam Bouchard character. He has this bit of set dressing. And then when he is the Ravel character, he's got the hat. And then when he's the Indian character, he's got the hat and the glasses and this and that and the other thing and the whole makeup thing going on. They eliminated that, but that's it's really okay. But it also kind of helped when it came to the introduction. And, and I can't remember uh, who pointed it out, but in the script, there's a bit of a thing where when he goes to shake Jake's hand, he gets black on Jake's hand because he had been trying to, he had been performing Othello. So it's like, okay, we're already getting that idea that he can put on these other roles and can put, you know, put himself into completely other races. In the film, they're trying out for a, uh, like a traveling Shakespeare company, but the, in the uh, script, it's specifically Othello, and they're both trying out for the role of Othello, I guess. Yeah, that whole notion of Sam Bouchard committing to a blackface interpretation of the role for the tryout is it, such a, an odd, strange choice. I, I don't know how the film would have played if that had been re- retained, but it does foreshadow his willingness to uh, play non-white characters which I guess would be the part of the film that has maybe aged the weirdest, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, his, his portrayal of the quote unquote, the Indian. I think that's maybe the part that people find uh, the most uh, difficult to talk about now. It was the eighties. We were all dressing up like Indians. I won a contest at a party. <laughs> Just don't post a picture of that. And I think you'll be all right. I do love that shot of Jake when he's at the one, I guess it's an audition and it's completely wordless. And he's sitting there at the end of a table with this nervous look on his face. And then they cut to what he's looking at. And it's just this room of people all staring at him. I mean, I think De Palma does a pretty good job of really showing the kind of horrible things that actors have to go through. And just the, the idea of the, all the pressures that are on Jake at this point. 
while he's waiting for it, I never noticed until this week when rewatching it that there's another actor who looks a lot like Jeff Daniels, more so than Bill Maher, waiting right next to him, wearing an identical outfit. So it's another double, but it's it's you know it's it's someone that looks just like a, like a better looking version of him in the same outfit, uh, trying out for the part. Like it's another you know uh, cruel reality of of being a struggling actor is there's always going to be someone that's just like a better version of you waiting to take that role. And we should talk about his clothes. His clothes are so distinct. He's almost always wearing like a light colored shirt with that brown, almost looks like it's a professor type of blazer that he's got going on, the jeans, the sneakers. And he wears that through so much of this movie. It's almost, you know, it's very distinctive. There are moments where he ends up changing his wardrobe to great effect because we see him in this one type of outfit so much through the majority of this that when he changes into the sweater and the glasses when he's the nerdy character we'll talk about and then when he uh, slicks back his hair and puts on more the leather jacket that that changes his appearance greatly too more so than you would think that it might but having seen him constantly in his costume uh, it really does make an effective switch once he moves out of it for me I get I I, I sort of get so sick of his uh his normal outfit that by the time he plays this, uh, this douchebag porn producer, I'm almost grateful and I hate myself for it that I prefer his, this look to, you know, the look we've been stuck with for, you know, an hour or so. And we've made mention of this scene with the acting coach where we get this revelation of why Jake has claustrophobia and it's this whole idea of him playing this game with his two older brothers called Sardine where he's, he's squished in behind the refrigerator. And apparently that came right out of De Palma. That was his thing that he played that and his, he's got the two older brothers that he always kind of looked up to, but also didn't necessarily like all that much. So that is interesting that Jake is such a, one-to-one relationship with our director and especially you know we know having talked about home movies before on the show and stuff that he had been a spy he would spy on his dad and learned about his dad's affair and all this kind of stuff so the whole idea of voyeurism really plays into that too and i mean what is a filmmaker really but like the ultimate voyeur setting up all of these things for him to look at and then for us the audience to then also be voyeurs looking at as well but it's neat that we know now that De Palma was in that situation. I don't think he had claustrophobia because of it, because of it but that he could give that backstory to Jake Scully was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, the voyeurism thing, I mean, crops up in Greetings, Hi Mom, Sisters, Dress to Kill. I mean, so many of the De Palma films deal with that theme. That whole sardine acting exercise sequence uh, isn't in the script uh, that we read either. I mean, that's that's definitely a case where he brought a, a personal story, and it's you don't think of him as a uh, as, as a pers- personal filmmaker in that way. Like as far as like bringing up a lot of his own autobiographical elements, so it's surprising, a nice surprise to see that he's bringing in his own life into something so stylized. I think it's interesting too for a movie that is so quintessentially De Palma in terms of the voyeurism and all the Hitchcockian tropes and his uh, formalist devices that work were completely missing a split screen in this movie, like not one split screen. Was there a uh, diopter shot in this? It feels like there might have been. There, yeah. are f- I think there are a few diopters, but no, no legitimate split screen. I wondered how much the. Uh 
like the massaging of the shoulders and the whole director as therapist kind of thing, you know, the you must act, the, the tough love kind of direction, like how much of that is meant to be parodying directors or or not. I, I was thinking about like how so much of this probably is his own uh, intending to comment on direction and performance uh, in a postmodern way, like how much of that is his own process or how much of that is satirizing how directors work with actors. Well, yeah, I mean, you can look at Vertigo directly as being a movie about directing and changing a woman's appearance in order to fit the role and all those kind of things. And that whole thing comes up again and again in this movie as well. I mean, it takes me a while sometimes to realize that when we see Gloria Revelle, quote unquote, across the way, that that is not Gloria Revelle, that that is Holly Body and the, the whole idea of how much of Holly do we see before we actually ever hear her speak and how much of her was manipulated to be that role. And I just, I love that whole idea again of the doubling of these, these women and that we spend so much of the movie, the first part of the movie with Gloria Revelle and the second half of the movie with Holly body. And it kind of reminds me of that whole Madeline Judy split that we have in vertigo. And with that one, it, it's interesting because we have, Judy turning to the camera and showing us through her flashback what's going on, but we never really get that identification with Holly Body or with Glory Rebel in this movie. They're very much just two ciphers. Yeah, I was I was thinking about how um Helen Shaver did all the, the voice work for, for Deborah Shelton, and then I just kinda got lost in that thought. I wondered if that was her voice or somebody else's voice. I, when she speaks to him outside of the tunnel, I was like, that doesn't seem like that's her voice. Yeah, and that's another form of this sort of metafictional repurposing of the performers, right? Specifically the, the, the female ones, because that, that isn't Deborah Shelton's voice. It's, it's Helen Shaver. And speaking of voices, rather than it being this whole idea of the acting coach as therapist thing that we we're talking about, and which again kind of reminds me of like Marnie with her childhood baggage and her having to work through this and her, her secret's a little bit more terrible than being caught behind a refrigerator. But that rather than that scene, we have a scene of Sam and Jake on the same audition both doing cartoon voices and Sam is doing the very virile lion and we've got Jake doing this hippo character and apparently he keeps using the wrong voice for the hippo but the director of the cartoon won't tell him what kind of voice to use and it gets very very frustrating he's like do you want me to talk higher talk lower talk slower talk funnier talk this way talk that way and the director's just like no I want you to do it this way and he never says what this way is like I want you to do it better and Sam nails it right off the bat, but Jake has to do his lines two and three times before he basically finally loses it. And that is the moment where Sam really realizes this is the guy. And it's very much like in that acting coach scene that we we're talking about, that nice push in on Sam when that is happening. And we just see those gears going in Greg Henry's brain to say, this is my guy. This is the guy I'm going to set up. And I don't know necessarily how he knows that Jake is a peeper, but he manages to set up the perfect thing to get Jake's attention. I guess more than Jake being a peeper, it's more just playing upon male 
maleness and the whole idea of seeing a naked lady. And I don't want to put words in your guys' mouth, but I guess most guys would be interested if there was a really attractive lady across the way doing a striptease every night, 8 o'clock sharp or whenever the show goes on, and having that as a uh, something that's a bonus to this apartment that uh, he sets them up in. Not only is it self-reflexive, right, because this is clearly one of De Palma's predilections and it's uh, one of Hitchcock's, but then he also implicates the audience for watching through the same telescope. And I think that's the reason that that scene goes on so long is so you can at first be titillated, but then also start to feel really skeezy about it. That's the first time that he shows Gloria to Jake through the telescope. I mean, there's a similar scene in, in High Mom where De Niro shows the Alan Garfield character a woman through a window uh, trying to interest him in a voyeuristic kind of film art project in, in that story. So it's it's a recurring, you know, sequence. Too. I mean, it's, it's, or it's, it, 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 you know, it resonates with an earlier De Palma movie. What I did was I computed the, the time on my, uh, on my watch, the 26 and a half minutes that it would take me to seduce her. 26 and, and a half? Yeah, 26 and a half minutes. And I set, right. the, I set the camera onto the clock radio and I had this red light bulb. Red light bulb? On and off and I the camera was on. I yeah, and the camera was on and I could see it from her apartment. Uh-huh. So as, as you'll see now, uh, see this is the, the preliminary stuff like she I'm you? getting her. Yeah, yeah. She a pro? And, uh, well, I, th- I think she is as a matter of fact, but she's uh, really great. And wait, see oh. what happens now is... See, we go down for a few minutes. You'll see yeah, right here. It's good. You, you we build up, up the watch, watch, watch. We're going to come up, and I rip her clothes off. It's fantastic. Great uh, stuff. Should be up any second now. Just, uh, just take a second. Going back to the, um, the, uh, the audition uh, scene. Um, you know, the cartoon audition. I mean, it, it achieves the same thing that the the actors' workshop does, as far as. Uh, Sam defending Jake against a director of some kind or some, someone critiquing him. Like he, he takes the opportunity to bond with him by, in the cartoon, uh, audition, he throws the audition that he would have gotten the, he would have gotten the job, but he, he, he sacrifices it to entice Jake to become friends with him. But, you know, in that bar scene, it's clear that even though they're kind of bonding, he's still, he's still interviewing him. He's still trying to get him to check out women in the bar. He's trying to get him to drink more. He's, he's feeling him out. So it's still part of that kind of uh, interrogation that he's doing before offering him the apartment. Right. And speaking of that bar scene, I think this is something that's subtle, but it, it stood out to me a lot is it's, it, it sort of speaks to the incompetence that, sort of runs through this Jake character on so many levels is him sort of lamenting his his newly broken off relationship and he just he says I keep I keep picturing it I see her laying there which is just so weird because we specifically saw her on top I don't know I th- I think that's maybe reading into it a little too much, but it just seems like something that Jake would say. So obviously say in terms of like not being able to remember and maybe not understand that he's being manipulated to the degree he's manipulated. We didn't comment on the earlier bar scene, but the one that establishes his drinking problem. And it's funny because when the bartender tries to comfort him about the breakup, he kind of snarls at him like, you know, just keep the glass fucking filled or whatever he says. Like he's, but he quickly backs down the minute that he can see that a more macho persona 
offends or hurts another person. Like he's too gentle to play that character that he's trying out in that moment. He just, he just goes back into self pity like a second later. So it's clear that he's too, he's too broken and weak to even, you know, engage as a surly, as a surly drunk. So there's this whole idea that Sam is leaving town. He's going to go up to Seattle. Is that right? To be in a repertory company? A uh, production of Private Lives, which I guess is an ironic choice for the, the, the Noel Coward play. And so he wants Jake to stay at this place. And we mentioned before, it's the Chemisphere building, which is a really interesting looking place. And uh, reading that uh, book called Double De Palma, thank you so much, uh, Bill, for turning me on to that book. They talk a lot in there that it was specifically chosen because it is such a phallic looking building and that the building that Gloria lives in, that her house is much more feminine. It's got all these curves to it and stuff. So I was like, Okay, at least they're they're even recognizing that in the way that they're choosing these things. And again, I love that really cheesy process shot of Jake and Sam up inside of the uh the the <laughs> up inside of the chemosphere, the way that we see them up there. And I think after a while they just built models and built models of everything just so that they could control all of this stuff and put uh they probably just rear projected a tiny little thing inside of a chemosphere model that they had. It's a crazy bachelor pad with a rotating bed and a view of this woman across the way. Sam's going out of town to be in private lives, going up to Seattle. And this is really because we've gotten introductions to uh, the score before, but this is where we get the theme, the theme of the film. And this, it's this Pino Dinaggio score and this theme to the uh, Gloria Ravel character that we're going to hear throughout this film. And it is just beautiful, ethereal, this woman's voice over top of it. And that is what we associate with Gloria and then eventually we'll start to associate it with Holly. And it's nice that they kind of bring that back, that it's this motion, this whole ritual that she has of putting on these jewels and dancing around and then doing this masturbation thing. And I love that Sam questions him right off the bat. Did you see her face? And it's like, no, I didn't see her face. He's looking at everything but the face. And of course, Sam covers it up with like, oh, she is gorgeous. But yeah, he knows that Jake is just interested in the body and watching the body. And it's a nice way to kind of ensure that, okay, you're just looking at what I want you to look at. I have set this up. I am the director of the scene. And you have just been the perfect audience member for me, Jake. This is my favorite of the scores that he's uh, composed for De Palma. And he's done most of the De Palma films uh, since Bernard Herrmann passed away, like starting with Carrie, I think. This one, it's interesting because it has those Herrmann-esque kind of uh, swelling dramatic cues, but it also has this telescope theme kind of uh, echoes like the uh, like the Tangerine Dream, Risky Business kind of scoring, oh, yeah. as well as the... Um, Giorgio Moroder, kind of American gigolo, like that kind of ethereal techno pop kind of sound of the early 80s, uh, which really, I think, uh, works perfectly uh, in, in, you know, as a recurring motif uh, for Gloria in the film. As far as the, uh, the scene where Sam shows him glory through the telescope, it also, this time watching it again, it reminded me of the scene in Videodrome where uh, the cameraman gets James Woods interested 
you know, in the in the Videodrome uh, show by showing him the sexual imagery. He's not really watching it himself, but he, this is the uh, the hook to get him obsessive and, you know, manipulate him through the sexual imagery. And it's also a way to get Jake then to watch Act 2. That's the whole thing. Every single time he does this, he wants him to watch the second act. You know, the first act is Holly Body doing her thing. Apparently, she leaves at some point, and then the real Gloria Revelle comes in. And then Sam puts on another show, but this time he's actually an actor in the show by being her husband and beating her up, taking her jewels or taking her money and then leaving. So now we've set this whole idea up. And the next time he is another actor where he is now the Indian character. And I know I keep saying Indian character and I should be saying Native American character, but that's what they call him in this movie. So it's a little bit easier for me to just say that. So I apologize. I I tend to say Native American, but yeah, so he's Again, acting in this, but this time he's in Act 1 in the the second night where he is now watching that. And I like that he's doing this work on a satellite dish at night, but he's got this acetylene torch. So it, the sparks from that are what draws Jake's eyes over to him. It's kind of like a lighting effect where it's like, no, no, I'm going to misdirect you from Holly Body. Come over here and look at me looking at Holly Body. So we kind of have this double voyeurism thing going on. And it's really nice that he is that manipulative. So again, Jake, our sad sack character, is doing exactly everything that Sam Bouchard, now also known as, what is it? He, he has two different names because in the script, he's one Ravel and in the movie, he's another Ravel. Is it Alexander Ravel in the movie? I think. Yeah, I think so. So he, that Alexander Ravel, and then now that the Indian want him to look at. So he's being manipulated by, quote unquote, three people at this point. And it is an interesting thing that he manages somehow. Now, this seems almost a little bit of a stretch and almost uh, kind of lending a, a little bit to possible magic in this movie that he manages, Sam manages to get a perfect thing happening the next day where there's Mexican guys who are cleaning up some stuff on the road. And that's where Gloria comes down from her house. Jake is there on the road. And then Jake sees the Indian lately you know, farther up the road. And that begins to me, one of the best set pieces that De Palma does. And that is this whole scene at this Galleria mall. And this is just breathtaking to me. And I absolutely love this whole sequence that starts on that second day and goes all the way up to the end of the day. Yeah, it feels like an extension of the kind of thing he's doing in the uh, the museum scene in uh, near the, in the first act of Dress to Kill, like that kind of silent stalking, but just on a grander scale. It's it's yeah, it's it is the centerpiece of the whole film. I mean, it might not be as commented on as like the drill murder and, uh, you know, the, the Frankie goes to Hollywood and other things that are more uh, flamboyant, but it is, you know, it, it's a great example of what De Palma does best. And again, this is right out of Vertigo when Scotty Ferguson is tracking down Madeline and watching her and going around and around and basically that whole spiral pattern that we keep seeing in Vertigo. And here he's following her through 
different parts of Los Angeles to the Galleria. And we get so many echoes of that to the point where we've got her in a dressing room and the slit of the curtain of the dressing room is very much like the door that Scotty's looking through as he looks through the back of the one store at her buying the dress. And we'll get that same idea later on with the introduction proper of the Holly Body character, very much similar as far as the doorway and the reflection and all this kind of stuff. And we get a nice reflection in here when she's going into this dressing room and we've got this actress who is playing the shop uh, girl and uh, I'm going to screw up her name, Slavica Jovan or Jovan, uh, mostly familiar to me as being Gozer the Gozarian from uh, Ghostbusters. I don't know why I never realized that that woman was in any other movies, but then when I put two and two together, it's like, oh my God, I, I chose the form of the Destructor. Yeah, 1984 was a good year for her. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that scene where Gloria's trying on the, the, the dress, it reminded me this time uh, of this scene, because she's wearing the dark glasses inside. It reminds me of the scene uh, at, the, at, the, at the head of Sisters, the uh, Peeping Tom's game show where uh, Margot Kidder plays the blind girl changing, unaware of a potential voyeur. Like, it's the same kind of moment. Um, and... You know, uh, Jake gets busted multiple times spying on her in this scene. It's like the voyeur's nightmare because the security guy stops him, uh, goes or the Gozarian stops him. You know, even the Indian is watching him from across the way. Like everyone sees his attempt at uh, – he's doing a very bad job at tailing her uh, and a very bad job of uh, peeping on her subtly. Yeah, he's kind of the worst. He's not good at anything. I always love the moment that starts off this sequence when the Indian goes running by. And it's so fast that there's a lot of times where he runs by and then it's just like, wait, was that the Indian that just ran by us? And it's a really nice touch. And this whole idea, I'm surprised that De Palma didn't do more things as a single take. This kind of reminds me of Snake Eyes with the way that we're kind of going through all of those different scenarios at the beginning of Snake Eyes as one it's not really a continuous take because we know there's digital edits by this time, but it looks like a single take. But in here, we get some really long takes. Again, we get the use of the steady cam. I love some of the, the wider shots where we are following Jake and then we can see both Gloria and the Indian at the same time on the same planes in this mall and everything. Just, I love the way that this is shot. And again, so many POV shots from Jake. So many, I, it looks like some POV shots from Gloria, which is interesting because we don't get a lot of Gloria. She's really, like I said, she's a cipher. We don't understand her very much at all. And it's a little bit of a surprise when we find out that she is calling another man, this guy, I think his name is Philip, who we never end up seeing or meeting at all in this film. So I guess she and this other guy are having an affair, but yeah, we never meet him at all. So he's just this kind of mystery figure that's out there. I guess maybe he's a red herring, right? Maybe we could think that he was behind some of this stuff that's going on, but I, I never think about Philip at all. He just is, he's supposed to meet her at a hotel. She's buying the new underwear for him, but then we never see this guy whatsoever. Yeah, I never even think of him either. And I, I want to ask you this because do you think that Sam Bouchard is meant to, do you think it's meant to be a surprise that he is a villain? Because we had so many hints from the beginning of his introduction to not, to not trust him that like you can see it on his face that he's planning something. Uh, you know, when we're first, you know, in that acting class, uh, do you think that 
that is meant to be suspenseful, whether or not he's in on some conspiracy? That's a really good question. I mean, it has been so long ago that I watched this the first time that I can't even put myself back in those shoes as far as did I know that he was a bad guy? It seems fairly obvious, like what what you said, as far as that push in on him, the way he is so smarmy, the way he's slapping Jake on the shoulder when he's looking through the telescope, like, oh, yeah, did you see her face? All those kind of things. He's just painted as a villain right from the beginning. Even in the bar when uh, when he's trying to comfort him, like the way that he looks at the camera with a sinister kind of – you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm projecting. It seems like there's like a slightly sinister aspect to his, uh, expression when he asks, you know, for another round of drinks when he's, you know, after that, that, uh, that, you know, that, uh, that acting workshop. Like there's, there's so much to suggest that he's a villain and there's not really any other characters introduced that could be red herrings other than, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Gloria's lover. It's funny. I read a, a review of this that described her as a nymphomaniac and I was thinking about like, is she an infomaniac because she has one lover and she's going to have, you know, a, a sexy encounter coming up in another scene we're going to be talking about? But is she really – she just seems like a very damaged or uh, vulnerable person, um, you know, in, in an abusive relationship. I don't – but I didn't get the impression that that's how we're supposed to read her. Right. She's not even the one masturbating. Yeah, who knows how long ago she got off? It could have been forever ago. Yeah, I, I, I took her to be more like the Angie Dickinson character in Dress to Kill, like somebody that's in an unhappy marriage that is maybe cruising for a little bit of action, but isn't necessarily, you know, unsympathetic or, you know, even, you know, that, uh, outrageous a character. Um, maybe that she knows she's alienated, you know, and, you know, that, that's maybe the one thing that, like, uh, I could say, but like, she, I, you know, I just, I find that funny that that was like some writer's interpretation of her character. But I mean, all of her scenes are like so many of them do have like a sexual component, but and that's an erotic thriller for you. And it's, it's as if, uh, both she and Angie Dickinson get punished as a, a result of their, their indiscretions as well. Angie, Angie Dickinson, not only does she catch the STD, but then, you know, she gets slashed up in the elevator. Yeah, and then Glory ends up with one of the most gruesome deaths that I've seen in a long time in movies. Outside of Italian horror or giallo. The last time I watched it, I wasn't sure what the motivation for her leaving her newly bought underwear behind was. Those are the old underwear. She's wearing the new underwear. Oh, that makes sense. She just ditches it in a flower pot, though. Yeah, that is kind of weird that she's like, okay, I, I guess it's that when you go buy new shoes and you're like, I'll wear these out and the sales girl like wraps the old ones or something. So yeah, it's, it's weird. I've never bought a single pair of underwear. Mine usually come in like six packs. So I'm unfamiliar with the, uh, the, the protocol as far as how you dispose of the old underwear. I love the story that uh, the, the screenwriter tells about how he thought that De Palma was crazy for having Jake pocket the underwear the first time around. Like when De Palma's like, yeah, and of course Jake takes the underwear and the, and Robert Average is like, what? What are you talking about? And it's like, no, no. He And then later on, when Jake is being interviewed by the police and the police find the underwear on him, it's like, oh, okay. And that never dawned on the screenwriter. That was just like a De Palma thing where he's like, yeah, no, you, you put that in and then you pull it out later and make him seem really bad. So it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, 
he yeah he is the worst detective and he does he ends up getting caught by gloria and i love when he's just like somebody's following you and she's like yeah i know (laughs) he's like no it's not me i always wonder if she does mean him or if she knows that the indian is following him but i think she means him yeah i think that's how i read that line and I don't think that this tunnel thing is necessarily in the screenplay. So again, it's this play on the claustrophobia. I mean, this seems like the most basic thing in the world. Like if you are manipulating Jake Scully, you are going to run into a place where he is going to freak out and be completely ineffectual. This is taking Scotty up to the top of the tower and ditching the real Madeline Albright or not Madeline Albright, (laughs) the real Madeline Elster off of that tower and having, you know, the Judy Madeline person up there with him. You are going to put Jake Scully into a situation where he is completely powerless, though it is a little much in that he doesn't even seem to realize that it's the key card that he stole. So I guess maybe that wasn't, why this wasn't in the screenplay originally, that it's just an act of heroism that he manages get, to get the purse back. But again, in this version, in the, in the final movie version, he is completely powerless. He is completely emasculated that Gloria then has to walk him out of the tunnel after she basically comes to his rescue and that we have Bouchard there as the Indian giving this triumphant whoop. And I love that the whoop is manipulated, that there's more to it than just his voice, that there's something underneath that whoop. It's kind of a cool thing that it's, uh, that there's more to this and that it's, it's more sinister than just a guy like giving a cheer. It's, it's so funny because I never buy him experiencing another freezing, uh, debilitating bout of claustrophobia in this, in this corridor that just seems so much larger than the other spaces that we see experience it in. I like when he's tailing her at the beginning of that sequence, how there's a, a shot where he's going underground, like an underground car park of some kind. And it's like the first hint that he's going to have to deal with claustrophobic situations if he's going to keep up with her on this, on this chase. But yeah, you, I think, um, and then the elevator scene also, I know you, Mike, you had mentioned that this, that moment reminded you of, of raising Kane. Yeah, I guess, is there an elevator at that hotel in Raising Cane? That's what I was thinking, that there's some sort of an elevator that happens in Raising Cane. Yeah, it's at the climax of the film, you know, when he, when, uh, what is her name? The wife is, is taking the elevator up and she's with her husband who's in, who's in the, uh, you know, the female police psych, psychologist's clothing. Like he's in drag, the Lithgow character. They encounter his father at the top. Of the, uh, of the air elevator. Like it's, it's, it's a whole intricate sequence based in an elevator. And of course, Dress to Kill has the big elevator murder scene also. Like there's definitely like some mileage he gets out of that location. Maybe not as much as showers, but he does like his elevator shots. Just as an aside, I hated Raising Cane the first time that I saw it. And it wasn't until I heard an episode of Movie Geeks United where they're talking about Raising Cane that I really started to come to appreciate it more as being kind of the, uh, and I know some people would say that Mission to Mars is the ultimate De Palma film, but Raising Cain is 
kind of the ultimate diploma. It's like he's playing with his own tropes by that time and building this whole new story. I just picked up the Blu-ray that has the unofficial director's cut. It seems like a fan edit that then eventually got released as a director's cut, which is a very interesting story. But I think that was another thing why I chafed against that movie watching it the first time was just like, this movie doesn't gel. And then reading the script years later, I was like, oh, okay, now this makes sense. The way that the script was set up was so different than the final product. And then putting it back together in my mind, which then eventually got put together on this Blu-ray, I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense had they done it this way. I guess it was just another one of those like greatest hits and seeing this elevator scene. I was just like, there's something about this that's recalling Raisin Kane, but I can't remember. So yeah, yet another De Palma elevator. Didn't he have to completely swap the narrative around in Raising Kane? So the John Lithgow part came, was it, did it come second and the Lolita Davidovich part came first? That fan edit that is De Palma approved and on the, uh, the arrow and probably I think who's who did it as well. Shout Factory, like the Blu-ray versions. Yeah, that is a uh, a De Palma approved fan edit. I was gonna say about raising Kane and Body Double is that they they remind me of each other in that they both feel like De Palma. Like directors don't always have a lot of control over what film comes next in a career, but those both feel like deliberate reactions to the film that he just got finished making that was like a big production, maybe not always a happy experience, a lot of compromises or fights. You know, when this he's coming off of Scarface and, you know, whatever challenges he might have had making that film and like a big production body double feels like a return to what people expect from him, which is like a Hitchcockian thriller, but it's weirder than the other ones. Like it's, it's a stranger film stylistically and thematically than something like Obsession or, or Dress to Kill. And Raising Cain is even weirder than that. You know, it's a very off-putting, quirky movie that it feels like a, a return to the Hitchcockian thrillers, but like it's him impatient with the form and trying all sorts of things that may or may not work, uh, because he's just done it so many times already. But that one that was coming off of the Bonfire of the Vanity. So it's like the same kind of logic where it's like, let me go back to something small scale and what I know that I can do better than my contemporaries, like at this kind of very designed thriller. But in both cases, they feel like like weirder takes on the Hitchcock thriller thing than I think what he started out with in the 70s. Well, according to that Double De Palma book, he wasn't even supposed to be directing Body Double, that he wanted to move on to another project and then ended up directing this anyway, almost reluctantly at first, but this is to me one of the V De Palma films. You know, you talk about his style, you talk about everything that he does. I mean it's it's right there in line, like, you know, sisters to dress to kill to this. You know, it's such like so so linear that he would work on this next. And yeah, this is a much more controlled, contained De Palma than it sounds like Jim, you weren't a big fan of, of Scarface either. I've never been able to make my way through that film. And so it's just, it's a, it's a tough watch for me. And this one is like such a palate cleanser and I just absolutely love it. The screenwriter for this uh, was, I think, hired to do like a, a war film. And maybe I can't remember the, maybe you've talked to him about it, but there was a different project that he was hired on to do. Uh, but then when Body Double came into being that the um yeah you, know, you know they were intentionally marrying rear window and vertigo tropes together with with other ideas but it was yeah he was hired for a much different kind of project 
even around the time of Scarface, he was pushing this as a um, potentially X-rated film. I don't know if we'll get to that later, but just the notion of him taking on this material, but more graphic and more sexual. Even the script seems more sexual than the final film, because I know this ran into MPA troubles also, and I'm trying to think what it could even be that got them into trouble. I mean, the the murder is more suggested than shown, and then the sexuality of it, I mean, it was definitely a different time, but I'm trying to think what what would have been objectionable other than I, I'm guessing the masturbating shots are described more in the script, the Holly body dance routine that, you know, he's seeing, maybe that's, I'm just guessing because I've never read specifically what he had to cut. So I mentioned before the possibility of magic in this movie. And one of the reasons why I bring that up is the idea of after Gloria rescues Jake and walks him out of the tunnel, they start to kiss and it becomes this magical kiss. And really the magic to me is that why would they kiss? It doesn't make any sense. He's been following her around. Maybe she was just really randy for Philip. And when, you know, he wasn't around, she ended up choosing Wasson. But Wasson, like I said, Jake Scully is not the greatest looking guy. He doesn't seem like he would be fantastic in bed. I think Barbara Crampton would agree. So. <laughs> She just goes for it with this guy, and it becomes this crazy, super over-stylized shot that, again, is right out of vertigo. And I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, okay, what are they going to cut this with? Because the vertigo shot that I'm talking about, and that you guys already know, but I'm just saying it for the listeners, is the shot where Scotty finally gets his new Madeline. He gets Judy to dress up like Madeline and they start to kiss in that hotel room and the camera is spinning around them one way and the turntable that they're on is spinning around another way. And at one point it stops and it becomes them in the, uh, the, the, the carriage house, I guess it is, or, or wherever this church is. And it becomes this other scene of the real Madeline or who he thinks is the real Madeline. And then they continue on with that. So he's basically making love to Madeline when he's really making love to Judy. And we'll get that later on, which is nice that this shot returns. But in this shot, they're just spinning around and doing all this stuff. And it's this process shot. So the background plate has been shot one day. They're shot in a studio. So it looks really, again, very fake, but in a good way, like, again, calling attention to itself. But it just is such a, a strange thing. And then it just ends almost as soon as it begins, where it's just like, no, no, I can't do this. And she goes off. This was the shot that really garnered my attention when I was a kid, other than, you know, Holly Bonnie and her, and her boobs and everything, was just like, oh my God, this is so bizarre. How, why is this happening? It just, not knowing Vertigo, I had no frame of reference for this, and I just was completely confused why all of a sudden the music swells and they're engaged in this kiss when they've never been introduced and have no chemistry together. Yeah, that's another thing that that feels completely shoehorned for me is that they're, they're sort of just using the same technique for that that they use in Vertigo. But you're right, there's no there's no functionality to it because you don't you don't fade to the carriage house, so there's no real need to shoot it in front of a green screen. I mean, they they use it to sort of mirror the same moment with Holly. But again, the the use of the the green screen, the process shot, just is really baffling to me. 
Do you think this moment works? Because De Palma doesn't think it does, because he intended it to work as an earnest romantic moment, like the music, like it's not played for laughs in his head. But when you watch it now, it feels so exaggerated and over the top that it feels like it's meant to be an ironic comment on this type of scene. And I think that because the film has so many postmodern aspects that a contemporary audience would see this scene and maybe think that he's making fun of the convention or that he's like that. It's like Almodovar or David Lynch or somebody commenting on genre film convention. Um, but he's not. Um, but, but it works great as like a ridiculous piece of camp or something. Like it's, it doesn't hurt the film for fans of it now, but it doesn't work as maybe he intended it to. Do you agree with that? I mean, what do you feel like this film takes you out of the film or does it take you further in because it's so ridiculous? This part takes me out later on when the same thing happens with Holly body, then it works for me because then we get the, the payoff to the shot, which is the camera's stopping or slowing down for a moment. And he's not with Holly anymore. He's with Gloria and then it continues. So he's basically making love to Gloria while he's really in actuality making love to Holly. So that switch, the original intention of the Hitchcock shot works for me, but this on its own and just this out of nowhereness does take me out of it. And I do laugh at this moment. Uh, I don't know if I should or not, but it, it always is just so overblown that I can't help but laugh. Part of the enjoyment and the love of this film is how absurd it is. Like I find myself laughing completely throughout this film and i feel like it's a logical progression or illogical rather progression of increasingly absurd elements where you you see this guy watching this woman who shouldn't know that she's being watched but she's doing this dance and masturbating clearly not for herself but for whoever's watching and then you get this moment in the hallway with the vertigo shot. And then that, I think, transitions so nicely into the, again, like completely insane murder. And then the uh, video within a movie relax porn scene. So I feel like it, it, it all makes sense in like this insane pastiche, pastiche de Palma roller coaster that is this movie. Yeah, I mean, there are things that call themselves out, call attention to themselves. I mean, the, the, the idea of De Palma being this master of style and bringing all these things to the fore. I mean, you know, as I'm watching this movie, I'm just like, wow, you can't get more v vaginal than this symbolism. Like I was talking about the curvy house and stuff, but I'm thinking things like, the safe that's inside of her room that she goes into before the masturbation thing. She goes in the safe and pulls out the jewels and does all this stuff. And then we see her husband reach into the safe and it's very much a violation of everything. It's just like, okay. Or the, or the Indian trying to get into the safe and it's just like, okay, yeah, this is basically a rape with him trying to get into the safe. And then talking about the Indian with this phallic drill that he's got and just that, I mean, that is so exaggerated and you get the exaggerated big things like the chemosphere, these kind of, you know, just like, Hey, there's a dick on screen right now. You get that kind of stuff. And then you get the, Hey, I'm going to take your person throw it onto the bed 
boom, we've got this vagina kind of thing happening here. Jake reaching into the bag and pulling out the underwear, these kind of things that it's just so exaggerated and so in your face that I can't help but think, okay, yeah, all of this stuff is exaggerated to make the larger point. Oh, sure. I think I think he's completely aware of what he's doing. I also think it's kind of this this thing that us looking at it after the fact decades later it, you know it has even even more of a intensity in in a new context you know like de palma de palma famously claims to have not understood the phallic imagery of the drill you know he 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 just said basically he needed something that would go from the second floor to the first floor which is such a weird you know like literal way to think of that i tend not to trust him when he says things like that. I mean, you look at something like High Mom, and De Niro's character is a voyeur photographer in that film, and he's commenting on the phallic nature of buildings that he's photographing. Like, De Palma's not stupid. Like, he knows this stuff. I mean, obviously, when the drill shot that is coming up that is one of the most famous shots in the film, there's no mistaking it. So when he says things like that, you wonder how much He's just being a glib promoter because he's, he's so matter of fact about many aspects of the film. But when it comes to themes, he's really, um, coy in a way that is, you know, you can't really trust when he says things like he didn't understand the phallic imagery of the drill when it's like coming between a guy's legs. Like there's no way he wouldn't have noticed that. Which is so interesting because I, I don't understand the need to be coy at any point when you're Brian De Palma and you have already made this movie, you know? I think it's just to agitate feminist film theorists further. Like, I think he just never really let that go. Yeah, he does like to push buttons. And I think that's one of the reasons why he got in so much trouble over stuff like this and Dress to Kill and Scarface is because he likes to stir up shit. And I respect the guy for that. We are finally at our third night of Jake at the house. And he is there pretending to make a phone call to Gloria. And at first I thought that he was making a phone call to her. Now he knows her name and he's able to call over there. And he's just like, yeah, I'm the guy you almost fucked on the beach today. But instead he gets a phone call from Sam. Who's basically making sure that everything is in position. This is like the five minutes to curtain kind of a call. And yep. Yep. I'm still here. I'm still in the house. I'm still watching and it's showtime now. And this is the big night. This is what everything has been leading up to. There's no pre masturbatory show. This is the main event. And this is the drill killing that we've been talking about. And this is in the era where, you know, we have the driller killer (laughs) happening and stuff. Well, we're introduced to this dog, which we've never seen before, as far as I know. And I love that this is the white dog from Sam Fuller's white dog, which was accused of racism. That's it's such a weird reason why that movie was kind of shit canned. I mean, it's basically an anti-racist film that's accused of being racist, but this is one of those dogs. Apparently they had three dogs and this was at least one of them. They had a, a, a nice dog, a, a little bit more aggressive dog. And then the one that would want to rip your face off when they let it out of the cage. And Jake gets to meet, you know, that version of it. 
It looks like it's really close between his house and Gloria Rebel's house, but there's a lot of space he has to travel. And then there's also hesitation. He's trying to call the police and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, this is the, the whole sequence of the Driller Killer, which, like I said, this was one of the most gruesome things that I had ever seen at this point, watching this the first time. And it still skeezes me out when I watch it today. When Sam calls to make sure he's watching, I love that like the next the next time you see the Indian, he still has the phone in his hand. Like if you didn't put it together already, the Indian is putting the phone away before he, you know, carries out the murder. But um, I wonder if there was I haven't really thought this through too well, but if there's something he's trying to say about the distances between people geographically in Los Angeles versus if this scene were happening in New York everyone's so close together but it takes him like 20 minutes to get from you know his house to the house next door and it's too uh it's too far a distance for him to save the girl uh if there was something you know all the driving they have to do to get from place to place um but you know as far as the murder i this is funny to me because this is maybe one of the scenes that caused the film to fail commercially uh you know because it it's it was talked about as like this extremely graphic killing sequence and i read pieces from the time that talk about like how you see the drill go through the woman and it's horrible but department felt it was necessary you never really see her impaled by it it's more suggested like i mean you see the aftermath of it but it's really just all misdirection and i mean the horrible shot of the the drill going through the floor and the blood it's it's very shocking still i mean how many times i've seen it but you don't actually see her getting stabbed by anything it's kind of like the texas chainsaw massacre like it's all just in the way that it's edited you think you're seeing more than you are yeah you do see it sticking out of her once he's done drilling through her but i'm also curious as to how much he had to cut out i think the most brutal part for me is when you are watching the indian from behind and it looks like he's basically like kicking her, standing on her legs and standing on her neck, maybe. Like you just see the way that his, he's holding his legs out and it looks like he's standing on her to keep her still before he puts the drill in her. And again, that's all from the back. It's all from just the way that the legs are that you think that this stuff is going on. You don't see this stuff. So. Yeah, it's it's wonderful that way, and I love the way that when Jake is on the ground, he looks up and he sees the drill bit come through the floor, and with that blood, it's just like, oh, it is so disgusting. The way that De Palma plays with us, that that the fucking drill is plugged into the wall, and when the cord comes out, I mean, that is masterful. That it seems like we're going to get away from this drill, and that he knocks himself out, the Indian gets knocked out by his own drill and everything, and there's that moment where they're struggling and all that. I, I, I love that he is just dragging this scene on and just ratcheting up the tension every single time that it's like he'll give us a little bit more and then he'll give us a reprieve and then a little bit more and then give us the reprieve and then when they have basically what ends up you know you could call it the cum shot of the the drill coming through the floor 
that's it. You know, we know that there's no more saving Gloria. And that also gives us time when it comes to Jake trying to get over there and the whole, you know, having to run down the stairs. I mean, we saw the guys taking a funicular to get up to the chemisphere before and now him running on the stairs, running down that long street. And we saw that she came down a long driveway before. So now he's going to have to get up that. And, you know, the house has, uh, is, it's closed off. The dog's there and everything so just so many things for him to try to overcome to get there and that they're cutting that with these little moments of reprieve it's just like he could do it no he's not going to oh he could do it no no he's not going to and then yeah finally this it's curtains on gloria we mentioned earlier that this is like something out of a giallo or an Italian horror film. And, you know, the original screenplay had a drowning instead of a drill murder when the drowning would have been very much like something out of, you know, deep red or uh, blood and black lace, like that, that kind of murder. But, you know, I think maybe just coming off of the, uh, the controversy and the MPAA battle over the chainsaw, uh, attack in Scarface, this feels like eh, no power tools and controversy. That's, that's my business. Let me rewrite this. And it becomes the most, uh, horrifying set piece. But, you know, the power tools murder thing, it's also a nod, obviously, to drill or killer and you know, maybe even Texas Chainsaw Massacre and to some extent. And the whole scene of him getting interviewed by the cops. That's right out of something like Vertigo again. And I know I've mentioned Vertigo a ton. I haven't mentioned Rear Window. And the, the, really for me, the Rear Window stuff is looking at Miss Torso across the way or looking at when Grace Kelly goes across the way and they see that, uh, the killer is there. They see that, uh, Raymond Burr is in the apartment or those moments where Raymond Burr is there smoking the cigarette and you just see that little red dot across the way and stuff. So those moments of helplessness that, um, what is it? I love that both of these characters, both played by Jimmy Stewart, both have these weird names. So it's, uh, LB Jeff Jeffries, uh, when it's, uh, rear window and then it's John Scotty Ferguson, you know, Scotty in quotes that they have these kind of similar nickname names, but, uh, the, the helplessness that LB Jeffries has as he's over there across the way with the cast on his leg and he can't do anything when he sees that his girl's in trouble in kind of the same way, Jake's there looking at Gloria and he really, he can try to do stuff, but he's not ever going to be able to save her. And then, yeah, after she gets murdered, we have the interview with the police detective, and it is very similar to the whole Henry Jones tribunal thing that Scotty goes through in Vertigo, where it's just like, let me completely humiliate you, let me emasculate you, let me give you all as much shame as I possibly can, and just make you feel as terrible as possible about you because you were ineffectual and you couldn't save this girl. What's this? Pants, some underpants. Yours? No. Where'd you get them? She uh, she dropped him in the trash. Who? Glorious. And you just picked him up? Yeah. Why? Come on, Scully, tell the truth. You fucked her and you kept him for a souvenir. No. No what? No, you didn't fuck her? No, you didn't keep him as a no souvenir? No, to both of them. Oh, maybe you're just a harmless panty sniffer, is that it? Oh, you got a dirty mind. That's a laugh. 
You peep on her, you follow her, you fuck her, you keep her little panties as a memento, and then you take a seat on a 50-yard line and watch her being caught. around. That's not what happened. I tried to save her. Watch you step there. Make sure you clear the doorway. Mm-hmm. Some save, Scully. Some save. Remind me to never put my life in your hands. Speaking of Hitchcock references, do we mention that the uh, the murder has a whiff of dial in for murder as well with the the phone cord? Oh yeah, I totally didn't get that. Thank you for pointing that one out. I didn't really want to psychoanalyze De Palma too much as far as like he's coming off a divorce because him and Nancy Allen split right before this movie. Like I don't know that he's necessarily trying to exercise anything. <laughs> so then the movie takes this really interesting turn, and we've gone from Jake the voyeur to now we become Jake the investigator. After you've seen someone brutally murdered, I imagine that some time has passed because he's got a good semi-growth of beard. He's got at least a Don Johnson going on here, which is appropriate because he's about to get introduced to the Melanie Griffith character, Holly Body. And uh, which, again, is great that he's uh, De Palma's now working with the daughter of uh, Tippi Hedren in this film. Her character is based a lot on the actress Annette Haven. And in the indicator disc, De Palma goes out of his way to never say her name, which really kind of hurts. Being that guy who people have referred to every once in a while as some guy, it always kills me when it's like, how much is it going to take for you to actually say the person's name rather than I interviewed this actress or I was talking to this actress and it's just like, no, no, say the woman's name. So say Annette Haven's name. But yes, she basically helped build the entire Holly body character. And from what I understand, she was even up for the role in audition. And then she ended up not getting the role, but then still being an advisor to Melanie Griffith and kind of helping her out with the role, which seems kind of a humiliating thing to me. Yeah. And she uh, pops up in the relax sequence as well. Which is also interesting that you mentioned that uh, he he actively excises her name from the the indicator Blu-ray because in the in the Noah Bombach De Palma documentary he has no problem name checking her. I wanted to use somebody that would be used to doing nudity, so I thought, well, why don't I get a porn star? I'd become very uh, close to uh, Annette Havens, who was a fascinating character. Because she was an adult actress entertainer, I basically created the whole character based around Annette. She had never, of course, auditioned for a movie in her life. It was old news to her. And it was a big scandal when I wanted to test Annette because Annette was a porn star and the head of the studio heard I was testing a porn star down on stage seven. <laughs> then they said to me, you can't do that. <laughs> this is when Columbia was owned by the Coca-Cola company. And I said, sorry. I'm doing it. And I did. I tested her and Melanie. I couldn't get anybody else to do the part, basically. There was so much nudity. The big thing that came out of Body Double was Melanie. That's what everybody wrote about. And uh, I had all this material from Annette. All those stories all came from Annette. I do not do animal acts. I do not do S&M or any variations of that particular bent. Um, no water sports either. I will not shave my pussy. No fist fucking and absolutely no coming in my face. And uh, she studied Annette. We had Annette come down and she was on the set. She was the bright spot in the movie that everybody sort of felt very happy about. After beating me down, all they could talk about was Melanie. 
My guess is that maybe because Columbia, because Sony was distributing the DVD, that those extras that Indicator recycles, those are from a DVD from Sony. And I know that with um, with MGM's Last House on the Left, they omitted any mention on the packaging of Fred Lincoln because of his porn connections. So I don't know if they are that squeamish still about mentioning specific people involved in the adult film industry. That was my only guess why they would be that way, because clearly he talks about her uh, openly in other places. So, yeah, I noticed that as well, that they don't mention her at all by by name. But it is odd you know, that they would acknowledge the, the adult film connection, but then nothing specific. But in the um, the script, Holly Body has uh, a scene where she, uh, you know, she mentions her acting credits, and she does mention Dracula Sucks, which is an Edit Haven film, uh, as well as Misty Mozart, which is a reference to Barbara uh, Broadcast director Radley Metzger's uh, opening of Misty Beethoven. So there's there's a lot there's a lot of um, Holly Body's backstory that comes from Annette Haven. A lot of her dialogue that was in the script only like seems to be biographical details that. De Palma got from interviewing her. Um, but yeah, it was controversial for him to even bring her to the set to try her out for the film. Um, and he said that he didn't hire her because she couldn't play like this certain kind of, uh, light, flirty, um, vulnerable moments that she had just become too, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing, but maybe too toughened or too, too mannered from, you know, so many, uh, adult film performances. I don't know if that's a cop-out and he just needed a, a Hollywood star for the part or if that was really what happened because it would have been a really bold choice for him to hire Annette Haven at that point, especially in the early 80s. Like that anti-pornography uh, protest cry would have had a uh, field day with uh, him casting an actual porno star. Apparently, the uh, really memorable Holly body monologue where she goes over her her hard limits and requirements comes straight from Annette Haven as well. This was a, that era, too, I think, where some porn actors were showing up in mainstream stuff. Like uh, Ron Jeremy had a couple of mainstream roles, little bit parts and stuff. But it's just like, oh, yeah, there's Ron Jeremy. I mean, we mentioned Ghostbusters before. Not a speaking role, but at least Ron Jeremy makes a little bit of appearance. But I'm thinking things like, what, Caged Heat or something? He's, he shows up in some sort of women in prison film and stuff. And it's just like, okay. So there was a little bit of crossover, but they still never quite made it. I mean, I'm trying to remember where 52 Pickup was. That seemed to be the movie where we could have both adult actors and quote-unquote Hollywood actors working at the same time uh, in the same project, but that did tie into the porn world, so it was kind of natural. But in here, again, it's kind of this left turn where we are into this porn world all of a sudden. The reference to Misty Mozart uh, actually reminded me of the line from the movie, Misty Beethoven. What's your name? Misty Beethoven. Is that your real name? No, it's not. I think it sound more important. What was it before? Dolores Beethoven. I should have guessed. And I like the way that we are introduced to the Hollybody commercial, Holly Does Hollywood, which in the script, it was a movie called Peepers. So and again, another voyeurism kind of thing uh, that we're introduced to her uh, during this uh Sid Goldberg show, uh, which is totally a, uh, a play on Al Goldstein's Midnight Blue. And I love the character actor who's playing the Sid Goldberg role and the way that he is 
kind of taunting the porn actress who is talking about her love of uh, having sex on screen and stuff, but it, it worked. And he's not nearly as skeezy as Al Goldberg or Al Goldstein, but it, it worked for me. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that uh, Sid Goldberg is interviewing an actress from Bold Obsession, and I wonder if that's a reference to De Palma's earlier riff on Vertigo. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read what Al Goldstein said about De Palma, because right after this film came out, Film Comment had a... Um, like a uh, like a round table kind of uh, section in one of their uh, I think the de- November December issue of 1984 and Al Goldstein was one of uh, a number of contributors commenting on De Palma and sexual violence in movies uh, both pro and con yeah his strategies and I wonder if Al Goldstein even knew he was mentioned in the original screenplay to this yeah that was uh, L A at midnight with Al Goldberg so it was pretty darn close. <laughs> <laughs> to Midnight Blue with Al Goldstein. Um, and then also another Obsession thing. I think uh, Annette Haven was also in a movie called Obsession from 77, I want to say, which seems like an interesting one. It seems like a a little bit of a roughie. I just uh, recently acquired that movie. I have yet to watch it, but I'm, I'm very curious now. I want to see more of her stuff. I mean, you did mention Barbara Broadcast, and if you are going to watch one Annette Haven film, definitely watch Barbara Broadcast because Henry Paris slash Radley Metzger, he, you know, we've talked about him many times on the show before. He knows his shit. He is a great, great director, and you really owe it to yourself to watch his stuff, especially uh, his things like, you know, for me, it's score and the opening of Misty Beethoven, but Barber Broadcast is right up there. I like that Holly does Hollywood, which is obviously... You know, a Debbie Does Dallas, Candy Goes to Hollywood kind of mashup title has elements that do resonate with the rest of the film. I mean, you have a peeping through a window shot and you have a woman who's played by uh, cult film actress Brink Stevens uh, masturbating while lying on her back. Like there's this could be like a little throwaway fake trailer, you know, for a porno movie. But even that has all these things that tie in to the to the imagery of the rest of the film. And I don't think I even really paid attention to that the first few times I've seen this film that it has like there's no there's no accidental shots in anything that he does. And then when he sees Holly doing her striptease routine or moving her body in the same way that he saw Gloria do, then the Pinot Dinaggio score comes up again with Gloria's theme, or at least a variation on her theme. So we're taken to that same place where Jake's mind is at, that this woman is acting just like the woman that was across the way. And so it's just like... Scotty seeing Judy on the street and suddenly the light goes off. I don't think that he thinks that she's a reincarnation, but he wants to know what the hell is going on and why this woman across the way danced the same way that this woman does or how this happened. So he goes on this two-prong attack of both auditioning for this role that in a new movie that Holly Body is in and then also playing a skeezy porn producer later on after he has this scene with Holly. And this scene with Holly, you know, we've mentioned it several times, is it's like a music video has been dropped into the middle of this movie. And I absolutely love it. Uh, it is Frankie Goes to Hollywood doing Relax. And it is a fantastic, fantastic song. Though this sequence is nowhere near as risque as the actual video for Relax, which I never saw until just a few years ago. And when I saw that video for Relax, my jaw was on the floor. So you're talking about the the band one, right? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. The one that takes place in the gay club, and there's basically cum uh, stand-ins all over the place, and it is just – it's lunacy, and it's fantastic. It's brilliant. It, it seems like something that uh, Tinto Brass would have directed. The uh, the director of the video you're talking about, the, the band Relax, is uh, – is Bernard Rose, who people might know from Candyman and Paper House and Immortal Beloved. I, I thought it was funny how similar, like, they're both set in, like, decadent nightclub s- situations. Like, he's still, you know, retaining some element of that original Frankie Goes to Hollywood video, even though he's, uh, yeah, he's is doing a more subtle film, you know, than that original music video with the uh, tiger wrestling and, you know, uh, ejaculating emperors and all that. The Frankie Goes to Hollywood sequence in Body Double, I mean, is Frankie, you know, Goes to Hollywood being brought to old Hollywood. Like, there's these references to things like Sunset Boulevard with the Annette Haven. And uh, even the choreography, I was trying to find what exactly they're referencing when Holly Johnson, another Holly Goes to Hollywood uh, moment, the Holly Johnson, the lead singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, is like carried aloft by the crowd and then placed kind of in on his side singing uh, on the bar. I don't know if you know what film you know from hollywood uh musicals of old like they're referencing there but like it's it's acknowledging old hollywood but in this like you know absurdly 80s new wave goth kind of dance club environment i was so curious how this even happened because that that double de palma book is fantastic but it really feels like it ends too early and i know that there's an author's note at the beginning that's like okay yeah this was this manuscript was due at this time and this was completed before post production and then it sounds like this frankie goes to hollywood stuff happened later on in the process Maybe that's why he got Annette Haven in it, too. I don't know. I don't know what the circumstances were for that shoot, because I found an interview with De Palma where he says that he, it was shot, he says, too far later. Like, he says, like, six or seven months later, which is impossible. But he does, he did, he did say that it was done, uh, after principal production had wrapped. And I think in between, uh, De Palma filmed and made a, a hit music video for Bruce Springsteen with that Dancing in the Dark, but that's a concert video. So I don't know if that gave him the idea or, or what, because you have music videos earlier in the film, but this would have been him trying out the kind of st- quote unquote story music video, <laughs> you know, that would have been prevalent in the early eighties and, and incorporating it as a way to bring you to the sex scene between Jake and Holly body. Cause I think originally it probably would have been closer to what's in the script, which would have been just them going straight into that sequence, uh, in the, in the film with the, uh, you know, the, the porno dialogue and I like to watch and all that. But, um, this is such a more clever and, and, and fun way to get to that point in the narrative. Well, I'm curious as to what point he filmed the other, scenes that would then end up in the body double version of the Frankie goes to Hollywood video that they released. Like, have you guys seen this with the Indian? No, there's a non band Frankie goes to Hollywood music video. That is basically a version of what you see in the movie, but it's weird because they're changing the tone of it. Like the, the Indian is in on this party and you also have uh, Holly Johnson sort of peeking through a telescope and seeing clips from the other movie. Basically he's, he's peeking through a telescope and he sees what Jake Scully sees prior to Gloria getting murdered. 
Yeah, I don't know if that video ever aired, though. I was trying to determine that because there's four videos for Relax, because there's a there's the Bernard Rose video that was banned, and then there was like one that was just very cheap, early 80s style video with just performance, lip syncing with like laser beams. And then there was the De Palma version, which he says they didn't like, and they made another video. And then there's like a live version, like concert, like a performance uh, take on the song. So there's, yeah, there's four different videos you can find of, of Relax. Which is the only version I saw as a kid was the concert version. And then this, but yeah, I never saw the uh, video edit, uh, which, uh, spoilers, I'm actually watching right now as we're talking about this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then it wasn't until 2006 or so that I saw the, uh, the, the Bernard Rose video. And that, like I said, I was just like, oh my God, how, how could this thing even exist? <laughs> Oh yeah, I see what you mean. The Indian is in this version yeah, of this. Yeah, he pops up at like one thirty, and then right around like two forty, uh, Holly Johnson's like peeping through the telescope. Yeah, I love the way that we are introduced to Holly Body in this. The the way that Jake Scully goes through the door and is framed there with the mirror and with her body, and then that dialogue happens. It's such a nice framing, and then. And the way that he is dressed with that sweater and the glasses, I mean, I know this is right around the time of uh, Tim Busfield in uh, Revenge of the Nerds, but it really feels like they're kind of blood brothers at this point. And those stupid little things like him moving back and forth and up and down to the music, it's so simple, but is just so goofy and so perfect for this that it's he plays that character because basically him in the sweater and glasses is Jake Scully to me. Like he is more Jake Scully in that outfit than he is the rest of the time where he's trying to be kind of a cool guy and stuff because he's such a dork through this entire movie. Do you think that the claustrophobia is something that we're meant to equate with impotence? And do you think that, Oh yeah. And so do you think that his ability to be porno film level of sexually the virility that he exhibits in the in the holly body scene i mean do you think that that's like we're meant to read too much into like because i it's never established that he's impotent even if you know his his relationship ended you know uh pretty abruptly uh, at the beginning of the film it's never it's never indicated that he's a bad lover we just maybe intuit it just from him being weak about everything else but that um that it is the uh, the identification with Gloria in that moment that yeah his virility kicks into gear finally. I just wasn't sure how you read that if that's if if you thought of it as an impotency thing that he's overcoming in that moment. I mean, I've always taken Scotty's vertigo to be a symbol of impotence, and by proxy, I take Jake's claustrophobia to be a symbol of his impotence, and then it seems like the only way that he's really getting it up with Holly is that he is seeing it as he's making love to Gloria and something in her has triggered. Maybe it's that he has been peeping on her for so long, even though he wasn't peeping on her, he was actually peeping on Holly body. So I don't know. To me, that's the way that I take it. And again, it's this kind of moment of magic, you know, like, again, I, I don't think that he is probably an amazing lover at all, but it really feels like Holly Body is getting off on having sex with him. Like, he is a great lover, and he 
he definitely uh, ejaculates, but there's no cum shot. And I love that they call call it out for that. Yeah, take for granted how that must have been a shocking line for a Hollywood thriller in the 80s. <laughs> and I do like that later on, she says, he didn't even know what a cum shot was. And it was just like, okay, did he not know the term or did he not know that he had to pull out and do that? One thing, just as a quick aside here, there was a time, I can't even remember what year it was, but the, I remember specifically killing time at a mall and going into the bookstore at the, the local mall, and they would have these books, like this whole series of books called Movie Flubs. And there were a lot of things where it was just like, oh, if you watch, the cigarette changes length in this scene, or blah, blah, blah. And they called out this movie because you saw the camera crew in the reflection of the mirror when Jake closes the door. <laughs> and that used to drive me up a fucking wall. Cause it's just like, guys, you're supposed to see the camera crew <laughs> when he closes the door. That's the whole point is that we see that this is a set, that this is a video that's being shot. This is a movie that's being shot. This is very much on purpose. And that was one of those moments where had I owned that book, I would have thrown it across the room and just you know, stomped on it. But it's just like, how how incompetent can you be that you think that that's a mistake? Clearly, they're not appreciating the film as much as we are. So that's part of your rage. And as quick as we've seen Jake as the nerd, we then see him then as this scuzzy porn producer. And then, yeah, to your point, Jim, I really appreciate seeing him in something else other than that same uniform that he's been wearing through this entire thing. And the way that he is kind of talking the talk and walking the walk with Holly. And we finally get some good Melanie Griffith here. And actually getting to see her doing a pretty decent-sized role in this and doing a great job with it. And I love this relationship between these two characters and the way that, you know, does she trust him? Does she not trust him? The way that he has to build, you know, earn her trust, those kind of things. A lot of this reminds me of Jack and Sally from Blowout. I think that's probably intentional. I think that whole idea of the movie guy with the, you know, sex worker or uh, adult film worker, you know, those kind of uh, roles playing off of each other, I think was very intentional to have that same type of dynamic with these two characters. Yeah, very much so. And I think that when she's in danger at the end, you have this, uh, at least if you, if you've seen blowout, you have this sick feeling to yourself, like, oh, is, is he going to go that route again? You know, with, I, I don't know if I want to give away the ending to blowout, but it's, yeah, it's a tragic, you know, conclusion of that. And it's, it's, you know, you know that he's willing to go there and, 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 uh, you know, put a likable character in danger. You had mentioned that you felt like Gloria and Holly were both ciphers, but I feel like there's, there's, you know, there's a little bit more to this character than just that. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of real person in there because so much of it seems to be coming from Annette Haven as a person that it feels like the movie really comes to life in a different way when this character is introduced. And I think that this is probably the one person that really benefited from body double at all is because I think this led to her doing something wild and then onward and upward for a good stretch of uh, the 80s and 90s as far as becoming a, a proper movie star after being in the business for a while she brings a lot of humor to the to film as well like she's and, and again that, that, that again that comes from Annette Haven so it's yeah, I, I sometimes wonder how it would have played with her in the role I know Annette Haven did not like Holly's hairstyle and that she was saying like punk wasn't in at this point 
And it's true. There weren't a lot of actresses that were rocking this kind of hairstyle. It kind of reminds me of Seika a little bit, but Seika's hair around this time was a little bit longer. And then as I was watching this, I'm, I'm quizzing Heather Drain about different porn actresses. And I'm just like, I remember this woman. I think her name was Viper. And she's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Viper was, was more punk. And then she turned me on to, uh, Lois Ayers, who also seemed to be kind of rocking a punk look around body double time. But yeah, for a while there, it was very unusual to see, uh, adult actresses with any sort of tattoos or short hair or anything that wasn't the, you know, American ideal of beauty at that time. So it was, uh, you know, obviously that has changed. Now you can't watch an adult film without seeing women with tattoos and stuff. And that makes me sound like an old man or something, but it, that's just kind of the way of the world. You know, bodies change, hairstyles change, interest rates fluctuate and porn actresses have uh, tattoos now rocket. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, funny to me that that was the one thing that she really objected about was that porn actresses do not, uh, have punk looks to them. Yeah. I read somewhere that Seika had said that she turned down being Melanie Griffith's body double in this film, which doesn't make any sense at all to me, but I, that's something I'd read. Uh, I also found a comment from Annette Haven herself on YouTube a few years ago, and she said, I was very happy to get out of Body Double. Brian turned it into a drill fest. So maybe they had a falling out, and that's why he doesn't mention her by name. I don't know. but So I, I want to fast forward a little bit here and get to where Jake thinks that he has everything figured out. And I love this whole fake flashback that we have from Jake's recollection of things. And it really presages something that we're going to see a few years after this, which is uh, Mission Impossible, where we have the Tom Cruise character, Ethan Hunt, figuring out things and us seeing his recollection of stuff through his POV as he's going through. And I know that actually threw some people. I remember Denzel Washington talking about how terribly confusing Brian De Palma's uh, Mission Impossible movie was, which really perplexed me. I'm just like, how could you be confused by that movie? But okay, uh, he didn't like that whole idea of the, you know, uh, the, the figuring out of stuff and showing things that may not be 100% true. Because the thing that I like the most about this a series of images that we're getting from Jake's recollection to say how uh, Alexander Ravel set up this whole situation. He knows that now that Ravel is Bouchard, but he does not know that Bouchard is the Indian. And so we get this great shot of the Indian with his mirrored sunglasses and we see Sam Bouchard's reflection in those mirrored sunglasses. And it's just like, Oh, that's nice. He's wrong at this point, but it's such a great, moment of him saying like, no, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then it isn't until he's down in this grave and the Holly body has been kidnapped and thrown into this grave that we get the confluence of events now of the claustrophobia, the final claustrophobia scene, and then him pulling the makeup off of the Indian's face and revealing Sam underneath there. So it, it, that is, is such a nice moment when he realizes and when he actually is surprised, it's like, Sam, like, like <laughs> Sam's going to stop when he does that. <laughs> he says it like, like by saying his name, like it's Jake. Hey, what are you doing? Sam? Yeah, he's like, Hey, Hey, snap out of it, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> and spe- speaking of Mission Impossible, it just occurred to me too that Emilio Estevez dies in an elevator in that movie, or rather, rather oh, on nice. top of one. 
and it has an unmasking scene as well. Like that's that's not dissimilar. I think he gets a uh, one of those spikes right through his eyes if memory serves. Right too. in the eyes, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> he gets drilled as well. Yeah, and this ending really gave them a lot of problems. Like, this is not the ending that we read in the screenplay. Again, I mentioned before, the dog was not in the screenplay. So the dog being there and alerting uh, Sam to Jake's presence and all this was not part of it. And the easily breakable glass of, <laughs> of Sam's truck window i i it's got to take a lot for a dog to jump through glass like that but hey you know it again there's magic in this movie so we'll just equate any sort of weird things with magic as far as that goes but yeah this is uh, uh i love this whole sequence and i love when jake is powerless there at the bottom of the grave and just those tall walls going up and sam's voice again being distorted and basically taunting him as he's pouring dirt down onto uh jake into holly i just think it's funny that the, the the dog breaks through the the glass with the same ease that jake scully breaks through the grave in the script where he's basically buried alive and then just somehow emerges yeah somehow he makes a little air pocket with his arm or something i'm like how does that work i had a really difficult time visualizing that ending i'm, <laughs> I'm glad we didn't have to watch it <laughs> Yeah, me too. Yeah, that that original ending, it's confusing because it, it lingers on like it, so in the original ending, he's burying Holly body alive and it's 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 shown to be kind of sad that she's she, she's powerless, she's struggling, uh she's terrified, she's being buried alive and it, it plays at least in my head when reading it like a kind of troubling you know, uh sequence, but then when uh Jake comes in to save her, She's in on it with Sam and she, uh, ultimately, like they, they bury him alive. Uh, like they team up and that she's actually revealed to be a villain in a sense. And th- the, the way that De Palma reimagines it for the film, she becomes, you know, she's a likable character. She remains one of the good guys. And then they also, they move the, the location of it from maybe like a wooded area to right on a, uh, a body of water. So it has this, ridiculous but wonderful kind of uh conclusion at the reservoir with the drowning and the dog yeah there's a reservoir there's a dog i'm seeing a pattern here <laughs> when you were talking about how jake miss discerns that sam is in cahoots with the indian it was it was just reminiscent of when jeffrey beaumont in in blue velvet is observing both frank booth and the well-dressed man and there's a similar kind of um reveal right that frank booth is the well-dressed man one well-dressed fucking man knows where your fucking cute little butt's hiding huh There's probably whole term papers to be written about the parallels between Body Double and Blue Velvet. I mean, there's a lot, you know, beyond the voyeurism and the stripping women and the witnessing of uh, violent interactions, you know. There's a shot at the beginning of the uh, Vampire's Kiss where you find the um, that the set carpenter has put his own name on one of the tombstones. And that's the kind of thing that you find in Blue Velvet in the um, Dorothy Valens apartment. There's uh, the production designer put his own name in, as one of the tenants. Like, there's lots of... <laughs> minor and major parallels between these two films and i i wonder if lynch was aware of de palma's film because the script predates 
De Palma's film, but it came out like, like I think they finished it like a year after Blue Velvet or a year after Body Double. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're both definitely drinking from that same Hitchcock well with a lot of this stuff. It's strange to me that uh, Jeffrey Beaumont's first name starts with a J, that Jake Scully's first name starts with a J, Jack Terry from Blowout, and then Jake Scully was not the original name of the character in here. It was John Scully, and they call him John completely through the script. And, to, and so sometime after that, they decided to go from a John to a Jake, which I think was good. But, you know, it's such a tough guy name compared to the character. I think maybe John would have been better, but he finally does live up to a Jake. And I love the way that we go from him in that grave to him in the previous grave and the way that they pull him out. Like we, we break all of a sudden and have this whole moment of him back on the set of vampires kiss. And this is again, one of those moments that separates this movie for me from just a typical, you know, erotic thriller kind of a thing that we can go to this moment and him interacting with Dennis Franz and he's still wearing the jacket that he was wearing before. And it seems like he's on set, but it's not, it's almost like he's giving himself an internal pep talk. And before he can decide to finally, you know, I don't want to say man up, but that's basically what he's doing in this is he is, you know, powering himself up in order to escape his phobia and stand up and pull that shovel and just luckily be there and duck at the right time for the dog to attack his owner and throw those two both into the water. And Holly never sees that at all and accuses Jake of being a necrophiliac, which I thought was really nice since basically Scotty from Vertigo is a necrophiliac that he wants to make love to this dead woman and recreates her as this live woman in order to have sex with her. (laughs) So there's a lot of weird necrophilia stuff going on in that movie as well. And Holly calls him out for it here in, in Body Double. And then, yeah, we have... The movie end on a successful note. Jake has been rehired now back to Vampire's Kiss. They got rid of that other bozo, I think uh, Dennis Franz calls him. And we actually see the whole bodily, body doubling thing going on. And uh, we see it set up and then we get what the actual movie might look like if we were to watch this movie for real. And it's a nice way to have that in the credits. And we also get a nice shot of Holly Body there on set. And so it seems like now she and Jake are a thing, which is kind of a nice happy ending. And I, I thought it was nice that they moved that scene from the beginning of the script to the end of the film and then adding Holly in there is a good way to really kind of wrap it up. Yeah, it, it did feel to me, since you mentioned blowout, blowout earlier, it did feel like if blowout had a happy ending, like that, that kind of emotional beat. And uh, I agree with you that it's a good thing that they move this to the end. I know he was con- uh, concerned that any mention of what body doubles is, are would, um, would be too much of a giveaway to what he was up to. Even the, um, the scene where he goes back to the vampire's kiss set to, um, you know, to confront, uh, the Dennis Ron's character. I think before that, when his agent, uh, calls to tell him that he's been fired, there's a line that doesn't appear in the film that uh, a new face, they, they found a new face to stick on your body. You know, another, another tell that, you know, there's something going on with, you know, replacing people in, in, in that way. But, um, yeah, no, I, I love the ending to this. And it's, of course, it's also a reference to, uh, dress to kill because, you know, Angie Dickinson's body double in the shower. I don't know if that's the germ of the idea, but that's definitely something that you can also, uh, connect to an earlier De Palma film if you want. 
So we're going to take a break and play a couple of interviews. First up is screenwriter Robert J. Average, and then after that is the Indian slash Sam Bouchard slash Alexander Ravel himself, Greg Henry. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions... Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Dot com. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly fake ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. How did you decide to become a screenwriter? It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do my whole life. I love movies. When I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, I used to just watch movies all the time. I was a terrible student, have all sorts of uh, disabilities and learning. Not a good situation for me in school, and I used to escape into the movies. And as a young child, it's, I dreamed of becoming a, uh, a screenwriter. There's that interesting time when you realize that there's somebody actually writing the words that the people are saying on screen. When was that moment for you? Do you remember? I think I was watching King Kong. I was very young. I was eight or nine years old, and my father was talking to me. And I think I was at the, at the point where I believe that the actors made it up as they go along. 
And I think I asked my father a few questions, like how did the actors talk to the monster? Or the, I don't remember exactly, but he told me that there is a writer who writes the stories. And that clicked with me in a, in a big way. And then when I was older, I saw a bunch of Hitchcock movies that had a, a huge effect on me. And I'd never quite seen anything like them. That sort of pushed me over the edge, especially Vertigo. Uh, rear Window, Psycho, those had a, a huge effect on me. And uh, they, were, they were just so beautifully written and so beautifully directed and acted that uh, that kind of clinched the deal for me. I started writing screenplays in high school. I went to, uh, my father was a, was a rabbi. I was brought up in an Orthodox home. And uh, I went to yeshivas my whole life, uh, Orthodox uh, yeshivas, which was a dual program where you studied Hebrew and uh, religious subjects in the morning and then English in the afternoon. And uh, I just was not a good student, as I said. And so I would spend basically all my time writing screenplays, you know, in my little notebooks. And they were terrible. And I just, just kept writing hundreds and hundreds of them, I guess. And you have to understand, I was brought up in the 50s. I was born in 1950, so quite a bit older. There were no film programs, and the the, the uh, culture that I was brought up in, everybody that I went to school with, all my friends, uh, became uh, doctors, lawyers, accountants, and uh, rabbis. And uh, I just had to wanted to do something else. So it was a it was an odd it was an odd childhood, to put it mildly. And I'd never even seen a screenplay, so I just sort of made up the form as I went along. Do you remember when the first time it was that you actually got to see a real screenplay? I was in a bookstore and I saw uh, four screenplays by Ingmar Bergman. And I bought that book, which I still have. And I'd never seen an Ingmar Bergman movie. And I read them and, and that was very helpful to me. Well, what did your folks think about you wanting to become a screenwriter? Uh, very, very worried. As I said, you know, my father was an Orthodox rabbi. We're a very religious household. Very, you know, uh, Brooklyn, deep in the heart of Brooklyn. And uh, they were worried that they were just worried that it's not something that a, uh, a religious Jewish boy should be doing with his life. So, how did you make the move from Brooklyn to Hollywood, or did you try your hand working in New York first? I went to Israel for a couple of years, and I was there during uh, the Yom Kippur War. I knew some some young men who died in the war, and uh, they were close friends. Um, and I also was close with their wives and their girlfriends, and it um, had a big impact on me. And I wrote a screenplay uh, based, basically based on you know what I imagined the front would be for those soldiers and what it was like for their wives. But it was mostly about the wives and the girlfriends back home. And it was actually the first good screenplay that I ever wrote. I mean, it was very, it was very effective screenplay. And uh, when I came back, and I, then I moved back to New York, I got a job at a film magazine. I just circulated the uh, screenplay, sent it to every agent in New York. You know, it, it got a respectful, respectful reads from a few people. And one of those people was um, Marty Bauer, who was uh, Brian's uh, agent. Brian uh, read my work, read this particular script and liked it very much. Uh, is just a sample, not something to make. He just thought it was a strong screenplay. And uh, he met me, he uh, gave me a, a five-page outline for Body Double. It was just um, bullet points. You know, this happens, this happens, this happens. 
we, you know, we sat and talked. We talked a lot about Hitchcock, and we got along. We had our aesthetics were tightly wound together. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to write this film, and I said, sure. Yeah, of course. What year was that? Do you remember? 1982, 83. No, it, it happened pretty quickly. I mean, I met him. Uh, we talked. We got along. I was very cheap, obviously. You know, I was an unknown writer, one of these unknown writers. Um, Brian was uh, actually, he he was actually thinking of hiring another director, a guy that I knew, low-budget film director to a director he was going to produce. But I, it became very clear to me very quickly that Brian was not going to let somebody else direct us when we were working on the script. I mean, he just, he cared too much. He was too specific. And uh, I, I just knew very early on that Brian was going to direct it. He just let this other director go very quickly, and he and I worked on it together. Where does Blood Bride or Death of a Nun, where does that fit into things? It's a low-budget feature that I wrote and directed, and that is thankfully forgotten and buried and nobody's ever seen. It's just not terribly good. Doesn't doesn't never really worked. Well, what was that process once you and Brian De Palma got together to hash out? You know, you talked about those bullet points that you got. How do you work out the beats and come up with what ends up being body double? I went off and I worked out the beats myself. I see. I have a tremendous respect for Brian. I, I think he's just an amazing director when he's on his game. When he's just the best there is. And I considered that my job was just to make the story as airtight as possible. Brian would take care of the style. He would take care of the camera movements and all that stuff that he's so good at. I felt that, like many directors, where Brian might get, get lost is in the story. And so my job as a storyteller was to make this an air, as airtight plot as possible when you're dealing with this kind of crazy material. Um, and so what I did was, is I worked very, very hard on trying to make an illogical plot as logical as possible, which is, in a sense, is a definition of almost every great movie. I mean, if you look at Hitchcock films, they're all, Ill- they're all nuts. They make no sense, but the whole trick is to make them seem comprehensible and to make them seem logical in the you know world of Newtonian physics. So that that's what I that was my job. So I worked very, very hard um trying to plug up all the, the little holes that kept appearing in the plot as we wrote it. So I would go off, I would write, I would come back to Brian, we would go over it, you know, we would you know, he's very he's a very smart guy. He's very analytical. And he would, you know, we, we would sit there and it was almost, you know, it was very interesting for me. You know, it was, it was like a Talmudic session for me. You know, I grew up learning Talmud, right? Which is, you, you study these, this incredibly difficult text and you poke holes and ask questions. And it's, you know, back and forth, back and forth, trying to make sense of it and trying to come to some kind of coherent uh, resolution. And that's what it was like writing this kind of, this thriller. You know, Brian and I would poke holes in the story, fill them up, and another place the hole would show up, and we would just, you know, walk around, you know, just try to make this thing work. And then finally, you know, after I we sort of exhausted the outline, he sent me off to uh, to write the screenplay, and I wrote several drafts, and then uh, he was in production. And uh, when he went off in production, then he did a, a rewrite all, all by himself, which I knew he would. I mean, that's just Brian. Uh you know, but he called me up and we went over certain things and said, well, I said, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of that idea? And, um, you know, 
So we sort of worked on the phone. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And uh, so I had nothing to do with the production. How did the story change between those that first time that you write that draft and then what we ended up seeing on screen? The main change, as I remember, is that the, originally the, it was you, Brian was going to shoot it in New York. And the character who ends up being an Indian was a Rastafarian. But it's it's really, he changed it to Indian because it's sort of just, it's just fit more in the West. So, but it was basically the same thing. It was actually, the truth is, is that, well, you know, the script is pretty close to what you see up on the screen. Yeah, I was reading the second draft of it last night, and even so much of the dialogue, everything seemed to be right there. The only real difference I saw was the murder of the woman was being done in a bathtub rather than with a drill. You know, Brian, again, a great director, and, you know, when he... He gets on set and he looks at stuff and he thinks about him. You know, he's going to make he's going to go with his gut instinct and um, and make it better usually. Well, that must have been kind of a thrill for you to be so invigorated when you saw the films of Hitchcock and now you're working on this kind of mashup of Vertigo and Rear Window and you know it's such a uh, an interesting way to put those two films together and actually make them work. It goes along with Rich and Stranger, my. Um, you know, favorite Hitchcock movies. And um, also Young and Innocent. I really love Young and Innocent. It was fun to do. Brian and I actually sat down and watched Vertigo together and Rear Window, uh, which were hard to get hold of in those days. Remember, it was just video. And a lot of things were not, not on tape. And somehow Brian managed to get them. Really terrible uh, copies. I remember the color, it, color was all off. But it was just wonderful to watch them. And we discussed them at length, and we really talked about it a lot. You know, I know critics well enough to know that we were going to get clobbered uh, for it. On the one hand, I loved doing it. On the other hand, I sort of saw the handwriting on the wall with certain uh, critics who would just take us to task for, you know, ripping off Hitchcock, uh, and, you know, which we weren't doing. We were openly paying homage to uh to a, just a great, great director, you know, probably the most important director in the history of movies. What was it like for you when you got to see the film projected for the first time? It was an experience. You know, you have to understand, I'm a, you know, I was raised in extremely modest conditions in a small apartment in Brooklyn. Nothing was expected of me except to, you know, go into a normal profession which I couldn't do because I was such a terrible student and I had, uh, and I wanted to do something else. And nobody really believed in me except uh, the woman whom I married, who was uh, a rabbi's daughter. Also from, we went to yeshiva together. I've known her since I was nine years old, actually been in love with her since I'm nine years old. We went to, the, it was a thrill, thrilling experience because uh, I moved out to California at studios. I was, got an agent very quickly and uh, was offered many deals. And uh, my wife and I moved out to California and uh, we paid our money and went to a theater and saw the film. And uh, I had tears running down my eyes because it's the only thing I, I ever wanted was to be in the movies. I wanted my wife. So <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience, you know, sitting with the, the woman I've loved since I'm nine years old and uh, seeing a movie and, uh, the thing that I loved most in life, besides my wife, is, is the movies to this day. What was the next thing that you managed to see in a theater of yours? Was it Dark Tower? 
I never think of that. That's a film again that I was commissioned to write by some company. I don't remember who they were. They did uh, my original script. I remember was pretty good, and then it um, got rewritten by all sorts of people, and I didn't even want credit on it. And because uh, I, I read an, a draft of it, and I thought it was just appalling, just awful. And so I've never seen the movie, so I I really can't talk about it. But I was just not happy with the script that uh, that has my name on it. My my name should not be on it. Nothing I can do about it. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's early in your career and you just put it behind you. Well, I do remember Stranger Among Us making quite a big splash when that came out. Uh, that's where I really write about uh, stuff that I know really, really well. You know, Orthodox Jews, and but I put it in um, Hollywood. Uh, I give a Hollywood spin to it. All right, so uh, that was fun for me. I really and I enjoyed working with Sidney Lumet. Another, another really, really fine New York director. You know, the thing when it comes to speaking to writers that I always say is that, you know, looking at your career on paper as far as what got uh, greenlit and actually made it to the screen is one story. And then there are all of the projects that never made it there. Are there any regrets that you have with some of those? Well, of course. I mean, like I'm like any other screenwriter in Hollywood. I have a pile of scripts that I've written on spec that haven't gotten made for one reason or another. And it's painful, but uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the business. You know, you get, uh, you get used to it. There's no use screaming about it and complaining. The truth is, uh, look, I'm privileged to work in, in Hollywood. I've made a very good living over these years. Uh, I've uh, raised children. I've got a house. And, and, you know, most of the people who come out to Hollywood fail. So, uh, so I have some things that weren't get, didn't get made. Maybe they will. Almost every project that I've worked on, except for Body Double, which is unusual, has taken years to get made. There's a film I wrote called The Devil's Arithmetic, which took me seven years to set up. And the only reason it got made was because Dustin Hoffman read it and liked it and came aboard as uh, executive producer. And then I won the Emmy for it. But that was the script I just turned down by everybody in town, you know, twice, three times. I mean, I submitted it everywhere. It just never stopped. But that's how that the business is. It's much easier for an executive to say no than to say yes. If he says no, he still has his parking spot, right? If he says yes and the film doesn't do well, well, he loses his parking spot, loses the lease on the BMW, you know, and his contract doesn't get re-upped, you know, and he's out there on his ass. Yeah, I did read... Um... I think this is one of yours, which uh, in Hitler's Shadow from, I want to say it was around 90. I think that was retitled The Infiltrator for HBO. I was, again, one of these weird projects where it came to me. I wrote original drafts, and then I was asked to do some stuff on the script that I didn't like at all. And I withdrew from the project, and another screenwriter came in and did a rewrite on me, um, which, again, you know, was that's that's the business. It's a pretty good film. It's okay. Um, you know, I not wild about it. The, the rewrite that I didn't want to do was done and it did damage to the story that I knew it would. So that's why I kind of withdrew. And I'm not a particularly temperamental writer. I don't have a bad reputation, but there are lines that I just don't want to cross because you, you work too hard. And why, you know, make myself crazy with a script, uh, that, that I'm unhappy with. You know, you do, you do the best you can, 
Um, and at a certain point, you know that maybe it's best to start. And I think almost all good writers uh, have. That. There are very few writers who will, who will write anything. And, uh, you know, I don't know many people like that. I assume they're after it. What's your process? Do you write every single day? I pretty much do. It's uh, writing is like a muscle, and you have to exercise that muscle. And after about you know thirty years of doing this, I, I think I'm finally getting the hang of it. What are you working on these days? I'm uh, writing a spec script about uh, about the Foreign Legion, a big a uh, big action adventure picture that takes place during 1863 in Mexico. You know, you've been in the business now for. Gosh, what, uh, almost 40 years, I think? My math is terrible. And you've seen so many changes in the business. Is it harder these days to get things made, or is it easier? Uh, I'll tell you what you can't do is you can't sell a huge spec script for a million dollars anymore, which I actually did during the 90s. You know, I had a big script, spec script with Joel Silver, and Madonna was attached, and Demi Moore, and Joel Schumacher was going to direct, and and I made a ton of money, and it never got made because you try working between uh, Demi and uh, Madonna and see where you end up. Um, So those those deals don't happen anymore, um, where you have a spec script that's going to make you a million dollars just for the option. And the business is not in the movies anymore. Nobody cares about the movies. People care about television, Um, and rightfully so, because... Producers and stars control, uh, and some directors, but basically producers and stars control the movies. And and comic books are the subject matter of movies, big studio movies, whereas writers control um, series television. And that's why series television is so excellent and the stuff that people talk about and the stuff that people care about. A continuing story. Um, movies are a a closed ecosystem. You watch a movie once, it's finished, it's gone. You watch a series, it is an open. It's it's the best of uh, Charles Dickens. You know, it's a story that can just keep going and going and going. You uh, you stand on the dock and you wait for the next boat to come in, and you yell. You know, did uh, what happened to Little Dorothy, or what happened to this this character or that character? And, you know, you hear the passengers who are coming over from England. They yell, "She died," you know, or something. So it's a it's an entirely different experience, and it's it's much more it's much more satisfying. So um, that's why people will binge on Netflix. You know, they'll sit and, or they'll go to or HBO. You know, they'll sit and they'll watch Game of Thrones. You know, starve themselves to death and watch for eight weeks or something. Nobody does that with movies. So that that obviously that's the the biggest change. If I were people who come to me for advice, I tell them you know ignore the movies and go straight to uh, television because that's where you control it as a writer and that's where you're going to do your best work. Do you mind if I ask what was that project with Madonna and Demi Moore? It was called Lita and Swan. It was a big um, cop, cop movie. It um, it was it was just a ton of development money poured into it. I did. I did a couple of rewrites and then um, because of internal politics and craziness and stars, mostly to me, uh, who was riding high in those days on the, you know, every week she was on the cover of Vanity Fair, you know, she wanted to bring in her own writer and uh, she did and he ruined the script. 
interesting. I made a mash of it, and after you know all these people, Joel Silver and Warner Brothers, you know, all spending like ten million dollars in development, it just was ended up being a piece of junk, and they just dropped it. You know, which happens all the time. And when all they had to do is go back to the original script, and they would have had a beautiful movie that was made endless amounts of money, just endless. But uh, you know, that's the way Hollywood work, Hollywood works. Can't complain. I made a lot of money. But uh, it's a shame, you know. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoy your podcast. I tell my wife, my my wife asked me, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm listening to uh, listening to this podcast." And she said, "Isn't this a problem where the podcast is longer than the movie?" We do have that problem quite <laughs> often. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, but I enjoy that. You know, I'm still uh, basically I'm still a little kid, you know, sitting on the floor. In, uh, in Brooklyn and watching the million dollar movie for the first time, watching King Kong for the first time and with my eyes wide and uh, amazed by the movie. How did you decide to become an actor? Well, I started really liking uh, movies, and um, my family was not a large television watchers. weren't allowed to watch much television. But, you know, when I started, it became sort of 14, 15, 16. I was, like, seeing a lot of movies on my own, you know. I actually began a little earlier than that with my paper route money, you know. I'd go and see movies. And so, so I liked that, and I kind of got into speech and oral interpretation in high school. And so um, I did very, very well at that, and I applied to a couple of small liberal arts colleges and one of them gave me a scholarship because of the bunch of trophies that I won for the uh, oral interp. And then I began acting in plays uh, in college. And after I was there at Drury College for a year, I said, well, I got to go to a different place to get a better bunch of training. And so uh, that's how I then transferred and went up to Washington. How long did it take you before you got the rich man, poor man gig? I left Seattle the day after graduation. I came to Los Angeles and, uh, you know, I started the, the kind of thing of slipping the, the picture and the resume under agents' doors and that sort of stuff, but I had to get a job to live, so I began working in restaurants and uh, tried to sort of scope out what's going on because Los Angeles is a very large, amorphous kind of place, so you kind of look for your footing and uh, um, so I worked at that restaurant for about six months and I guy kept coming in um, actually from back he was from Cleveland not from Detroit but uh, David Johnson was his name he's a great bass player played with Roy Ayers and the OJs and stuff and so we started talking music and so then we formed a band for a while and uh, we did that for about five months as I lost every penny and beginning to call the parents for money. So when the band folded, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I've spent all this time trying to get the acting uh, in school, uh, so i got to get back to that. I think I sort of, you know, got sidetracked a bit. Then I started selling over the phone to live, and uh, and I started uh, finding various theaters around town to sort of spend time in. And uh, I didn't do any productions then, but I uh, began auditioning, and I auditioned for the Old Globe, went down to San Diego. I got a got an apprentice gig down there, and uh, 
I got to understudy the leads of various uh, plays, uh, including uh, Orlando and As You Like It, and then I went on about four or five times in that. Somebody uh, then recommended me to Joel Thurm, who was a casting director, and he in turn knew that Pam Dixon was looking for somebody to play Nick Nolte's son. And so then I went from uh, I went from the old Globe Theater uh, doing Shakespeare up to doing Rich Man Poor Man. I don't know if people my age I I remember Rich Man Poor Man, but I, I imagine people younger than me don't remember the importance of that and just what a big deal that was. And especially you know the first one with Nick Nolte, the second one uh, was equally, if if memory serves, as popular. Just what a what a huge deal TV movies and miniseries were at that time. Oh yeah, it was. I uh, no, I don't think people are aware, of, and and uh, sort of this, you know, they now call it extended form or lung form or thing. <laughs> but the uh, they have different names for it now. But the miniseries, I think there was just sort of QV seven and uh, maybe one other one before Rich Man Poor Man. Now, there were only about th- maybe two before Rich Man Poor Man. So it was very much in the first bunch of those, and that was just gigantic. It was huge. Then when we did the series, that was a novel thing for Hollywood because uh, they wanted Nick Nolte to come play his, his son and they wanted, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I talked to Nick once. He's like, hey, you believe that? They want me to play my son. Are you fucking kidding me? But they wanted they wanted Peter. They wanted all these cast members. And of course, Peter was able to um, get the, the deal that he wanted. You know, you could just sign your deal because it was a precedent-setting thing in that from that point forward, if you did a miniseries, you signed that series deal as well in case they wanted you the next time. It was a very big deal in ours, book two, uh, the series. We did 22, and that's all Peter was contracted for, and so that's why it stopped then. It was big, but it wasn't anywhere near as big as the miniseries. You were in one that it took me forever to track down a copy of. I don't know if it's easier these days to find it, but... Back in the VHS days, it took me forever to get my hands on a copy of Mean Dog Blues. Oh, Mean Dog Blues, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I'm trying to remember who, who, was that Crown International that made that? No, it was Bing Crosby Pictures, Bing Crosby Productions, I think, that made that movie. Yeah. What a cast for that. That was crazy how many well-known faces there were in that film. Oh, yeah, we had a great cast. George Kennedy, Kay Lange, uh, Felton Parry, Gregory Sierra, and Jim Wainwright. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good people. You know, the movie, uh, the movie didn't have a lot of press behind it or a lot of push behind it when it first came out, you know. Um, I think it was, you know, sort of well-reviewed, but it was not. It didn't have a lot of juice and money behind it to, to push it, so. It was it was gone pretty quickly. It was probably why you couldn't find it. Can you tell me about when you first met and started working with Brian De Palma? Yeah, I first met Brian on Scarface. I uh, um, my agent said there's this one line part in this movie. Uh, are you interested in it? Um, and I said what? And they said, well, it's with Al Pacino, and you get to do. It. I said, well, that could be interesting. It's with Brian De Palma. Well, that could be interesting. I said, well, what the heck, I'll go see. So they set up a meeting with Marty Bregman. And so I went and, uh, and uh, I met Marty in his office, and uh, uh, and he said, uh, okay, do the line. 
<laughs> so, so I, uh, how do you do, Mr. Montana? That's the line. And uh, he said, great, you got the job. Okay. And that was that. And it was uh, one of the easiest jobs I've ever gotten. But uh, And also the only time I've ever read with the producer only <laughs> and got the job. So that's where I met Ryan. And that part was... Uh, uh, you know, what was great about that was watching Al work, watching Brian work, watching John Alonzo work. Uh, it, it was uh, it was the first um, large budget studio movie that I'd been on, and so that was kind of a trip. It was uh, a very rainy season as we shot in uh, Santa Barbara, uh, which was doubling for uh, Bogota. What was supposed to be uh, three days' work ended up being like two and a half weeks' work. That was a pretty good job, but um, I met, that's where I met Brian. So he probably, you know, so my face kept coming up in his face in the editing room, I guess. Um, but then uh, when Body Double came along, I ended up uh, uh, getting an audition for that because of Howard Gottfried's secretary saw me in a play uh, in downtown L.A. Jim Tree was her name. And... Um, when they were looking for the part, Sam Bichard, she said, oh, this is, you know, this guy would be great. At which point it was brought to, up to Brian. He went, oh, oh, well, yeah, I know who he is. Uh, yeah, sure. And so then I went in and went through and had a meeting with Brian. I sort of read it with the casting director and Brian there. And then that began a long process of sort of callbacks that then went to uh, a screen test, old-fashioned full-crew screen test. I ended up getting the job. The role of Sam Bouchard is pretty interesting since, I mean, really you're playing three characters in this film. And I'm curious, how did you approach who you're going to be as Sam Bouchard, who you're going to be as the Indian, who you're going to be as uh, Ravel? Did you have a very distinct approach to each one of those? Well, the Indian, of course, doesn't speak, uh, you know, so uh, the the Indian was, that was all just about the makeup and the physicality of it, uh, you know, to sort of present the most different kind of physicality I could. So there was a combination of, you know, full chest prosthetic, neck prosthetic, teeth, hair, the whole thing, full three and a half inch lifts on the boot, sort of trying to add add some large man swagger <laughs> to it. Uh, so that was that was basically that. And Sam Bouchard was sort of a, in one sense, he's a made-up persona. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's just sort of like... Uh, uh, he's, he's just basically a con man. He's just basically trying to suck Craig's character, uh, Jake, uh, in, you know, suck him in. Let's created that on, the, on just sort of a, kind of a street hustle kind of thing and a, and a sort of an acting, uh, a large town showbiz kind of hustle thing because there's all kinds of people, uh, in, in LA that are always on the hustle. Uh, that's kind of what that was about. Now, I don't know what the other one is that you're talking about. Been a long time. Well, you were also the husband. It was very brief when you go in and you uh, smack Deborah Shelton around. Oh yes, yes, yeah. It's where I'm wearing the hat and the yeah, and I come up with a Lamborghini. Yeah, that's just basically a different sort of disguise, you know. And so, I really looked at it as uh, that uh, the guy I was playing as Sam Bouchard was the guy that was all of them, and he had created this ruse and this con, and then just played the played the characters in the play, you know. I'm not sure how Brian De Palma works. How do you go about actually getting into that character and finding that and working with Craig Wasson? Well, Brian likes to rehearse, and uh, and he's he's old school in that way. For Body Double, we we rehearsed for almost a full two weeks. I think you know between ten days and two weeks, fully taped out floor, just like a stage play. 
uh, of what, what the set pieces were going to be, where the sets were going to be, what we were doing. Uh, so there wasn't a scene, really, that we didn't uh, touch on in that rehearsal, with the exception, I think, of really the grave of the grave. But it was all well rehearsed and well discussed, you know, so that the objectives were clear and we were all, you know, very clear on what we were what we were going to do. And Brian, um, in those rehearsal periods, you know, he's a constantly uh, meticulous observer, um, but he's a very uh, he's very compassionate with his actors. He very much lets them lets them roll and uh, lets them, you know, show him and uh, was never. Uh, sort of dictatorial in the way some directors can kind of be, you know what I mean? Even though it is always his vision and his alone. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not true, but those rehearsals were great for me because uh, I'm a theater animal. That's where I came from. So it was all, it all made me very comfortable. I was very appreciative for it. And and it's true of the other movies we've done with him as well. I mean, um, not as complete uh, a rehearsal, you know, not as full taped out floor and all that kind of stuff, but a couple of days of rehearsing and reading and, stuff like that, which is more than you get for a lot of movies these days. Had you ever done anything that heavy when it comes to the makeup at that point? No, that was a first. Tom and Barry Dryband, they were wonderful. It was a lot of makeup. It was at first, it was going to be Rick Baker. So I went over and I did a full death mask with Rick Baker, and he had a whole design going, and then something fell out with scheduling on that. And so then Tom came in, so I went over and did another death mask with him, and we started a whole new makeup uh, with him and Barry, his uh, wife, I believe, um, and uh, at the time, I can't remember when marriage happened, but at any rate, it was about four and a half hours worth of makeup, because as I said, it was a full chest, stomach piece, full neck piece, full face, obviously, uh, around the ears, full wig, full dentures, top, bottom, I mean, those you know, slip-on teeth, so... And then once you get all that on, then you got to paint it all, you know. And, and so it's like, uh, but it started out about four and a half hours, and I think we might have got it down to maybe three hours and forty-five minutes. You really knocked it out of there. Trimmed huh? a bit <laughs> off of it, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you get those calls, you know, when you're doing we're doing the big uh, sort of chase on the beach and through the tunnel, uh, you know. I had like a one forty-five call uh, <laughs> in the morning for a six a.m. call on the set. That's what it was like. And then you're in that all day long? Yeah, then you're in that all day long. Yeah, it was quite something. Is that 100% you, or did you also have a stuntman who was made up to look like you? No, that was, that was all me. The only time it wasn't me was uh, there was a shot of the Indian welding up on, a, up on a tower. I don't know if you remember that shot, but kind of long distance. You don't come in on it. It's a long shot, and that's not me. But other than that, it was all me. Did you have to work much with that dog or with those dogs? I imagine it was yeah, a team. Yeah, I worked with quite a bit. No, it's really that one dog. It was really the one dog, a white dog, who was the dog from Sam Fuller's white dog, um, actually, I think. I'm racking my brain to remember the animal trainer right now. Wonderful guy. I can't remember his name, but he was so good with him and uh, very good with, with me and putting us together. He, he's smart as a whip, that dog. He was great. He had very he had a lot of trouble trying to go through that glass in the, in the, in the car. That, that was very difficult for him, but but he's a good pup. When you started working on this film, was the ending already set? Uh, I know what you're referring to. He did amend the ending after after we were up and running. Can't remember what that change was about uh, exactly, but that does strike a, a bell with me. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. 
I remember changing was the actual sort of sequence that got us out of the grave, that got the dog in, that got the dog to do that whole ending kind of sequence there prior to the ending that takes us back to the present. Uh, that that was a decision on Brian's part at uh, after we had started. The things that we aren't seeing when you are putting the drill through Deborah Shelton – I imagine she's not there at all. Is there what were you looking at at that point? <laughs> no, Deborah wasn't there for that when that happens. And uh, of course, everybody swears that they see the drill go into the body, but you never do. So uh, it was just a point for you know they just gave me an X on the on the floor for where her where her face and eyes were, and then uh, a spot for where we were going to drop the drill. The movie opened to eh, mixed reviews, let's say. It has definitely you know, garnered a, a larger reputation since then. That's pretty kind. <laughs> I didn't want to be mean. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean. Yeah. No, no, people didn't. No, no, people did not like it. You know, Pauline Kael liked it. I'm not sure anybody else did. But then, of course, you get all these reviews as DVDs come out, as Blu-rays come out and everybody, you know, now everybody is like, oh, God, that was a great movie. And I was reading a couple of things today to sort of reacquaint myself before we spoke. And it's made it all with a masterpiece in a bunch of people uh, that are reviewing it now from 2016 on. So I don't know. It just takes time, I guess, <laughs> to marinate. <laughs> I really wanted to ask you that whole sequence that takes place in the mall. How long did that take to shoot all that stuff? Do you remember? I want to say we were there for two, three days, I think. Yeah, certainly two days. I don't know if we had a third or not, but there were certainly two days there. Yes, and that was very new, the Rodeo collection. I don't even think all the stores were rented out at that point in time. So, uh, yet, you know, it was all hyper-glossy new, new spot. Yeah, I think three days. If I, uh, I don't know, it's a long time to remember the schedule, Mike. I, I, I don't know. Did Body Double do anything for you as far as your career goes, at least at the time? You know, I got a parking space at Warner Brothers. It was great to be kicked upstairs to uh, to uh, to the big leagues of, of the major motion pictures, and so that was great. And so people sort of became aware of me in that world a little bit, which was good. But of course, I switched from playing. I switched to playing a villain, which of course then puts you uh, into a different understanding of everybody's mind, and so. Uh, so then there was the battle of, well, gee, can he play a good guy? And I was like, oh, this is what I did for the first four years before this. So I don't know. Really, everything you do helps you in some way. And you never know who's going to go, you know what I loved was body double and give you a job. You just don't know. Um, I, of course, was very grateful for it. And, uh, you know, disappointed that it wasn't reviewed better and wasn't left in the theaters longer. It was it was just not received well. There was also a lot of problems at Columbia at that time. I think Guy McElwain had just taken over, and I don't know whether the Bagelman scandal was then or still uh, they were still dealing with that or something. I don't know. There was something different at Columbia as well, and so I think it was the what it really was was the Bagelman thing was earlier, but the changing of the guard from I think it was maybe Price to McElwain. Uh, as that always happens, it's like, well, who picked which movie? And if the one, if the outgoing administration picked that movie, the incoming administration is not going to sell that movie. You know, we suffered a little bit from that, but basically the reviews were uh, brutal. 
What was your role like in uh, Casualties of War? Did you see Paltrow and, and Birnbaum's De Palma, the documentary? So, uh, yeah, we went to see that for fun, and uh, it was fun to, fun to watch that. And it was also fun to see that because I saw a scene of mine from Casualties of War. Uh, and, of course, I, uh, when my wife and I went to movie theaters to see Casualties of War, I wasn't in it and um, was cut out entirely. And, I, you know, it was one of those situations where Brian didn't let me know. And it's always like, ooh, God, that smarts a little bit. That stinks. But it was great to sort of uh, hear in that uh, documentary kind of what happened with that. And when it got to the court-martial scenes, which is where my scenes were, they didn't want this re-prosecution, this new attack on, on, on Michael Fox's character. I understood I understood that. It was a fun surprise to see to see the lost the lost Greg Henry footage from Casualties of War uh, in that documentary. Yeah, it was fun. As you're you're doing all of this work, because you've been in so many things over the years, what's your relationship like with music? Are you going back and continuing to to play in a band, or how does that go? Well, yeah, no, I, I, I always continue to do music. I uh, always continue to write songs, um, and uh, I really sort of recommitted myself to songwriting, I guess, in kind of the late 90s. Um, had a pretty good hit with uh, with uh, Dwight Yoakam called The Back of Your Hand, um, which uh, the, uh, the video for that was number one on country music television for about five weeks, I think, and uh, and it's been on country music television's greatest hits and Dwight's greatest hits and, you know, a number of other greatest hits collections. So that's all kind of fun for me. And so I've continued to write songs and, you know, I've played some songs that I've either played and sang or for other people in some various things. I've been writing a musical. I wrote a musical uh, called Little Egypt, the musical, which we did here in Los Angeles, and then also that took back to New York, um, which I did music and lyrics for. Uh, Lynn Siepert wrote the book. And then I've just written another one that I developed with the uh, Labyrinth Theater. Uh, so I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a masochist in this area with the uh, writing musicals, but uh, uh, it keeps me off the streets. I like it. And I play out from time to time here. You know, when I have new songs, I play out at various clubs in L.A. I asked you about the makeup uh, being the Indian character before. And I'm curious. I know that you were full makeup when it came to Star Trek Insurrection. Had you done anything even remotely like that in between that those roles? Those were the big makeup roles. Um, Those are pretty big. I mean, how long did it take for the makeup for Insurrection? Yeah, Insurrection was a long one, too. And um, Although that one started out at about 3.45, and we got that down to about 2.45 over time. So uh, was there another one in between? I don't think so. I think the others were since then. You know, I did a huge makeup for uh, Slither, and I did a huge makeup for uh, another an episode of uh, of uh, Star Trek. One of those Star Treks. I don't know right. what generation it is. I forgot. Uh, Enterprise, I think it was. Enterprise, yeah. Um, and that was a full lizard guy, and that one took about three hours as well. So I do know the feeling of uh, cold glue on your face at... Uh, three in the morning. 
One of my favorite roles of yours, where it just seems like you are having a lot of fun, and please don't shatter the illusion if you weren't, but when you are <laughs> Val Resnick in Payback, you were it just looked like you were having such a great time being such a bad guy. I had a great time. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I thought the role was uh, a lot of fun, and, and Brian was... Um, Brian was great in that he, he really sort of uh, went for the ride with my interpretation of what the part was. Because uh, when I was auditioning for that, which is a very long process, initially he was like, he was loving it because he was laughing. And he said, I just didn't know it was this funny. you know. And I said, it is to me. So he, uh, after a couple more callbacks, he was like really going with that. And then, uh, then of course, Lucy needed to be cast, so we were going through the so I, I said I'd read with her for uh, for those auditions and um, but I still wasn't I still wasn't cast even when I read Lucy uh, it took it took another three months before uh, before Mel saw the audition tape then once he did then then then, then we were golden then we were going but I had a I had a wonderful time yeah it was a great time Mel was tremendously fun to play with as of course Lucy was we had a great time and uh Shot in Chicago. It was Indian summer in Chicago. Uh, beautiful fall, warm fall uh, weather um, for five weeks there. And then we were back at uh, Warner Brothers for five weeks. More recently, you have become almost like a rabbit's foot for uh, James Gunn. You've been in almost everything that he's done recently. Yeah, well, I think we got the record that I've still been in everything he's done. Although the last, the last Guardians of the Galaxy, it was an extremely brief, extremely brief, but it was long enough to actually recognize me, which means about that long. Yeah, James, I think, is a brilliant filmmaker and a beautiful guy. Um, got a really piece of bad luck from uh, these evil trolls, and then. Disney brass uh, deciding that uh, they would let evil trolls organize and plan their business, um, but uh, but but James was much more open about it and all, and said he understood and uh, everything, and uh, you know, and he's got a, some other great things lined up. I think I think he's doing Suicide Squad and possibly uh, I know he wrote it, but he might even be directing that. So, um, but uh, yeah, I did. Uh, did uh, Slither and uh, and Super and both Guardians, and then I did his uh, small series uh, about the uh, <laughs> the raccoon. What was that called? Uh, he has a great love of raccoons. I don't know if you Sparky and Michaela. That was the uh, <laughs> that was the uh, the one we did, which was hilarious. We shot it at his house with just puppet raccoons on on skateboards, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> So what are you up to now? Are you still working on Black Lightning? Uh, no. Uh, they killed me dead um, on Black Lightning. Spoilers. Jeez. Uh, well, you know, that so people uh, regenerate and come back to life, you know. So you just uh, you just never you just never know. Um, but that was a lot of fun doing that show. But I, I shot a movie this summer uh, in Winnipeg uh, that was called Strike when we shot it. It is now going to be called Stand. Um, and is uh, a musical, and it's based on the uh, the general labor strike of 1919, which was a very big thing around the world, really. Um, but in Winnipeg, it was particularly huge. There was this guy, Danny Shore, wrote this musical as a stage play, which has played every year in Winnipeg for about eight years, something like that. And then he finally put together a screenplay 
got together the money. Uh, we shot this movie up there uh, in September. And I just did some ADR on it last week, and it's looking pretty good. And their hope is to uh, take it to Cannes because uh, the worldwide labor strike will have its 100th anniversary in June of 1919. There's a lot of interest uh, from labor groups and uh, from countries that still respect labor unions, so they're interested to get over to Europe uh, with it, and hopefully uh, hopefully, Ken will uh, say, sure, come on over. Was this your first proper musical where you're singing on screen? On screen, yep. I've sung my own songs on screen, but uh, this is the first time uh, to be in a musical, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Finally marrying those passions together, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Mike. I hope you got some things that are of interest to you and uh, are usable, as they say. double you have to know that your movie is successful in some ways if there is a almost beat for beat shot for shot bollywood remake of it and body double definitely qualifies for that there is a film called pela nasha which translates roughly to first intoxication as in like first love and it was directed by i'm going to butcher the name ashutaj gowarkir who also directed the Oscar-nominated Lagan film, which is available on Netflix right now, just in case people want to see that. It plays a lot, of course, with movie-making tropes. It starts off with the scene that is this really over-the-top kind of a scene of violence and... Um, this guy saving all these people who live in this apartment complex, it seems like. And I'm saying seems like because there's no subtitles that I've been able to find this. But you really don't necessarily need the subtitles because, like I said, once we get out of that, we go, we, we see this 
movie. We think it's the real thing, but then we end up knowing that it's a movie. We go to the premiere of this movie. Everyone's happy. Everybody's, you know, clapping. And the, our main character is, uh, whose name is Deepak is, uh, you know, getting slapped on the back and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off in the building. No, it's not the fire alarm. It's his alarm clock. He's just a struggling actor and he's going through the exact same things that Jake Scully went through. So the biggest difference for me, is that there are different moral codes when it comes to Indian films versus the U.S. film. And there's no nudity allowed in this Bollywood movie at, at this point. I don't know if there are if nudity's allowed now, but it's basically this woman dancing across the way, and that really does something for our main character, and she ends up just being a dancer at a club that he happens to walk into. There's no... LA after midnight kind of a show and she gives this performance that then reminds him of this performance across the way but yeah it's in it, the thing that kept getting me and one of the reasons why I kept saying the Indian throughout this entire movie uh when we're talking about body double is because the Indian in this film is played by an Indian not only can they not show nudity and uh, there's no uh, gory drill murders, but I don't think they're allowed to kiss on screen either. So you have a lot of hugging in this film, which is different for an erotic thriller. And um, I was really upset that there wasn't a 360 degree angle of a hug, uh, you know, like a camera shot like in uh, Vertigo. But, you know, it, it is uh, it is odd to see what could be a PG take at best of uh, of this story. It's got a lot more dream sequences, has a lot more musical numbers uh, uh, than I was ex- – well, I kind of was expecting some, but none, none as good as the uh, relax. I was absolutely fine with all of the musical numbers in here, and I kind of actually liked the one of the first ones, uh, Mr. Zero, something or other. But of all the musical sequences, the only one that I ended up fast-forwarding was – the one in the club with all the guys who look like they're dressed as uh, Arabic guys who have like the, the chic head thing going on. That one goes on for way too fucking long. And I just couldn't stand it after a while. It's just like, no, of all the musical sequences, this is the one that broke the camel's back. I have to fast forward through this. Yeah. It is a little excessive. I, I, I was, I mean, I was surprised when he called the Gloria character and then they broke into a musical number singing to one another, uh, which, you know, was not a, a twist I was not, I did not see coming, even if it was revealed to be a fantasy sequence. But I thought it was interesting that it, it's dealing with movie culture in a sense, but it's not satirizing those worlds the way De Palmo does. Like it's not dealing with schlock or horror or porn. Like it's dealing with what feels like the big budget kind of movies that would constitute success, like a personal breakthrough for the actor hero. Um, I, I can't remember if, the uh, the director, I thought I read that he was a movie star before becoming a filmmaker, and which might be why he had so many big name Bollywood stars in his debut feature, even though the film, from what I understand, was not a success commercially. I was happy when there were like little nods to the film Don, uh, and yeah, we do ultimately have a success we kind of replay that success of him in the you know the opening night is revisited at the end of the film and it's basically it almost reminds me of like 
North by Northwest when they're on the Lincoln Memorial and he's like, you know, here, give me your hand. And he pulls her up and he's actually pulling her up into the bed in the train and the train goes in the tunnel. It's like, okay, yeah, now we are in the movie version of the end of the film. The one thing that I found interesting, too, was that they don't have a guy in makeup, that they actually have two different actors playing the Sam Bouchard role. And because when I saw the guy who was Sam Bouchard and then I saw the guy who was, quote unquote, the Indian, I was just like, wow, they look really different. That's a fantastic makeup job. <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to figure out how that makeup was being achieved because he looked so different from the other actor. I'm like, oh, it's actually just a different guy. It's funny you mentioned North by Northwest because – for me, the most interesting variation on De Palma's film was the tunnel that yeah he chases the uh, the Indian you know standing character in uh, in the in this version is a train track tunnel and so I was reminded of North by Northwest as well as Body Double you know with the um, with the train tunnel it is it follows certain sequences so closely like that it's I, I don't know if De Palma, I wonder if De Palma has seen it because he's never commented on it yeah. But yeah, it is so close. Um, and I'm really hoping I, I was talking to, uh, the guy that does the, uh, uh, Deja View series on YouTube, who I just talked to, uh, talked about recently when we were talking about another film that had a, uh, a different remake, uh, uh, another country remake. And, um, yeah, he really needs to cover this one because it is so similar, but yet so different at the same time. And those weird moments of comedy, like, when there's crazy glue that gets introduced and he grabs the Holly body character's arm. And I was just like, did he just grab her arm with crazy glue? And then there's a whole song that takes place as they're, yeah. <laughs> they're bonded together the with this crazy moment, glue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, now we are in love and now, yeah. And, or her two bodyguards that beat the shit out of him, And then he's in the hospital and he's trying to talk to her and there's miscommunication that's going on. So for an erotic thriller, this movie has a lot of, comedy in it yeah when he tries to explain the holly body dance you know to the police chief by acting it out in the in the uh in the police station i thought you know it felt like a roberto benini comedy or something it just felt like a totally different kind of filmmaking <laughs> yeah that was pretty painful I was very surprised when I read that De Palma was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Body Double because of all the things that I can say about Body Double, the direction in that movie was really fucking good. And so I don't know, you know, what Harold P. Raspberry, what his qualifications were as far as like, why this movie was considered, you know, why, why De Palma was considered to be one of the worst directors of the year. But I guess it was just part of that backlash against this film because Body Double in his day was not a very well liked film. We mentioned Blue Velvet earlier. This movie actually made more money as a flop than Blue Velvet did as a sleeper hit. Like it didn't like make the, I mean, it didn't make a lot of money, but it made it didn't, I think it like, I think it cost 10 million and made eight or something like that. It wasn't like a, a fiasco the way Blowout was or the way that, you know, Bonfire the Vanities or something was. But, um, it, it, it has to just be the, uh, I don't know, maybe they thought like, cause who, who votes on that? Is that, is that all industry people that vote on the Golden Raspberries? I don't know who that is. It feels like, I know the Golden Turkeys and the Medveds, but it feels like something that, you know, a couple of, 
jokers like the Medved brothers would just get into a dark closet and touch each other and uh, throw out titles of stuff. I mean, I was just looking at the winners for the 2018 uh, Golden Raspberries, and it's just like Holmes and Watson basically swept everything. I was like, wow, that's really kind of easy, guys. <laughs> and then the it was like Holmes and Watson for so many of the categories, and then it was Donald Trump for so many of the categories, and then it was Melissa McCarthy for Happy Time Murders. And I was just like, wow. That's that's some real hard-hitting acerbic satire that you guys are doing there. Yeah, I don't know if it was just a backlash because of the porn connections or the uh, the, the the constant fighting over the the X ratings. Or I don't I don't know if if they were just trying to like send a send a message that kind of uh, renegade behavior in the '80s Hollywood was not going to be tolerated. I don't know because it's not really a great era for Mavericks in the studio system. And this was like the last film he made that really pushed those kind of buttons for a while. Which is so funny, too, because then Blue Velvet would go on to get the the best director nomination for the Academy Awards. Though it definitely not get a positive review from Roger Ebert. But it got a great review from uh, De Palma's old champion, Pauline Kael. So. De Palma could go up on screen, take a shit, and Pauline Kael would have given him a thousand words of how great it was. Although, I think Although did- Pauline Kael did not, did not like Blue, uh, Body Double nearly as much as his previous stuff, I think. Yeah. He didn't like Craig Wasson either. So speaking of Wasson, I feel... Like, I can't let this episode go without mentioning this. Now, I don't know as far as like the validity and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Cause there was a, I don't know who the person was that wrote this blog post from April of 2007. Now, I find it interesting that Watson's last credited screen role was 2006. And then April 2007, there was a blog called Bitchy Actress. So bitchyactress.blogspot.com. And she hasn't written for a few years. There's no way to get a hold of her because I would have liked to have talked to her about this. She wrote a story on her blog. And I don't know if it's her or a a story about her or a story about a friend because it's a little confusing as far as that goes. Maybe you guys can correct me, but there's a story that she tells about being a teenager and hanging out with Craig Wasson and him pretty much being very handsy with these teenage, this teenage girl. And in 2019, reading that story, and I'd read that years before when I was trying to get a hold of Craig Wasson made me really uncomfortable, uh, you know, in, in this kind of, okay, this guy should have been outed as being kind of a sexual predator. And it's kind of sounds like he was, he's still working. He still does a ton of stuff as far as audio books. Like I mentioned on the LA confidential episode a few months ago, he does the narration for the LA confidential audio book. That's on audible. That's pretty much his stock and trade now is doing audiobook readings. He does a great job of it, but uh, I don't know if there was a correlation between this story on this blog and his screen career kind of ending, or if it was just coincidental. It definitely does not look good for him. If that, if this, if this is what happened, it's, it definitely is a very creepy anecdote that is shared on the blog. I, I, I know that um, our, our mutual friend, Amanda Reyes had known him, you know, it, years ago and said that he was, um, Nice enough and wasn't creepy with her, um, but you know that uh, he de- maybe seemed a little troubled at that stage. This was years ago, but I think he's since found religion, which makes him very much unlike Bill Maher. No confusing the two as far as that goes. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
19th century France, Jean-Baptiste Grenouille was born with a talent that made him unique among mankind. Stones, warm stones, water, frog. His phenomenal sense of smell was a gift that had been given to him and him alone. Master, can I come to work for you? My nose knows all the smells in the world. No man can call himself a perfumer unless he has proved his worth. The soul of beings is their scent. <sighs> the intoxicating power of the girl's smell made it clear to him that he must learn how to preserve scent so that never again would he lose such sublime beauty. We'll be back next week with a look at Tom Tickfer's perfume. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jim and Bill. So, Bill, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, um, I've been taking a little bit of a break uh, from my show supporting characters. I, I am preparing new episodes, but I, I'm not sure when uh, I'll start putting them out again. But uh, you can find the old episodes over at www.nowplayingnetwork.net. Um, I think since last time I talked to you, I've had Peter Biskin, Stephen Thrower, Rachel Nisbet, uh, Manuela Lasich, Sergio Mims, Adrian Martin, Eric Allen Hatch, a bunch of people. Uh, I talked to different um, people that write about film or do film programming, uh, DVD extras and such. Uh, so you can find that show, the old episodes there. Otherwise, um, I did a few essays for an upcoming book on 1980s cult movies that is going to be edited by Kat Ellinger. Uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out. And then I'm working on some home video related stuff that hasn't been announced yet. So I, I can't say anything more than that. And Jim, what's happening in your world? So my latest short film, Library Hours, is kind of at the tail end of its festival run. Uh, so it was on the circuit for over a year. And uh, now I'm developing a feature film, which is a very non-De Palma uh, murder mystery sort of takes place in uh, two different timelines. It's uh, 1979 and 1999 as well. Um, and so I'm kind of just heads down on that, writing that, uh, hoping to get that shooting later this year. My previous stuff can be seen on uh, my website, which is www.jimvendiola.com. And then if anybody wants to keep track of my stuff beyond the website, all the social media links are accessible from there. 
Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.